2024 marks the 100th anniversary of the Royal Canadian Air Force with celebrations and events planned to honor those who have served and those serving today while inspiring the next generation of RCAF personnel. Visit rcaf2024arc.ca to learn about the RCAF's past and current fleet of more than 200 aircraft, plus the many planned activities including air shows, e-gaming tournaments, the RCAF Run, Canadian Tulip Festival, and STEM activities for youth. Then, on April 1st, in recognition of the positive impact the RCAF has had worldwide, businesses, cities, and landmarks around the world will be illuminating in Air Force Blue to celebrate the occasion. Join the fun. Illuminate your residence or place of work in blue to show your support while joining a world record attempt for the most landmarks illuminated within 24 hours. And when you do, share a picture on social media using hashtag RCAF2024, hashtag RCAF100, or hashtag Your Air Force. Again, RCAF2024ARC.ca to learn more about the Royal Canadian Air Force Centennial. To me, the reason why I still do it is I love naval aviation and the patriotism and the camaraderie, everything that is made up in the concept of fighter pilots and this relationship that we have. And to be able to still feel like I'm contributing is incredibly rewarding. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And joining me in studio today is retired U.S. Navy Captain Jim DiMatteo. He flew the A-4, the F-5, the F-14, 16, and 18. He's an Aviation Hall of Famer and just an all-around great guy. Guido, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Jello. All-around great guy. That's usually not in the intro, but thank you very much. All right, well then, let me uh, do that one better. You've been a real pain in my ass to get in this studio, mister. I know. I apologize. <laughs> But I'm glad I'm here. So thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Well, let's see. It was my airline schedule. It was uh, Attack of the Killer African Bees. It was, it was your yes. schedule. It was 100 things. So. It was. But here we are. The, so yeah. water and, under the bridge. And no bees, which is good. No bees, yeah. I almost didn't want to get out of the car to come to your door <laughs> to get you because I thought they might get me. Anyway. Your background is amazing. That's why I've been looking so forward to getting you here in the studio to talk about that. And really, sometimes I just start off with, oh, where are you from? What would you do? And then we get on to the subject. But you are the subject, Guido. So, I mean, let's start at the beginning. You come from somewhat, dare I say, a legacy of military aviators, starting with your dad. Yeah, thanks for having me here. And uh, that's a great intro in the sense of I find myself extremely lucky to be part of a family that's been involved in aviation, not only aviation, but naval aviation specifically. I wore this shirt today in honor of my pops because he was one of the original sundowners way back in uh, in World War II. Wow. He's my idol as a human being, as a father, as a parent, as a husband, as a naval officer, and as a naval aviator. Still fortunate to have him with us. He's about to turn 102 years old. Wow. So he's got those good old Italian uh, strong <laughs> genes don't know if I inherited all of it, but I hope some of it. And so feel incredibly fortunate to have him still be with us. He was a career naval aviator, was 30-plus years. He started out, in, uh, like I said, in World War II. When it all went down and the U.S. got involved, he was a uh, tail gunner in a TBM in Miami, just out of high school. They all kind of went in uh, when things started getting bad. 
and so he was a tail gunner. And then, uh, unfortunately, there was a lot of mishaps and a lot of casualties there at the beginning, not not only from combat, but just trying to get everybody up to speed and flying these new fighter-type airplanes. Mm -hmm. And so it was leaving a lot of openings for pilots. And so his pilot, who was a lieutenant that he was the gunner for in the TBM, said, you need to sign up for this program. It's called the V-5 program. And so he went in as an enlisted kid to the program and had his first CQ on uh, the USS Wolverine, which was a paddle boat on Lake Michigan. Wow. <laughs> Back in the, the crazy days. Yeah. Uh, and then went zinging off to uh, the Sundowners in the Pacific. They were stationed in uh, Kahului, which is if you fly into Maui, you've probably flown into Maui Airport. That used to be called Naval Air Station or Naval Outlying Airfield, I think, Kahului. So it was outside of Ford Island's kind of approach. And he flew uh, Hellcats and Bearcats for the Sundowners back then. And then came back, had to go to college then. So uh, we have this incredible story about we found his diary just a few years ago. And uh, one of his entries in his diary is, uh, yeah, I have to go back to college. It's a little college in South Bay uh, of San Francisco. It's called Stanford. And so he flew out of Moffett Airfield. Wow. Okay. And then uh, that's where I met my mom. And fast forward, we have uh, six brothers and sisters. My brother's also a naval aviator, uh, was a Prowler A6 guy and older than me. And a uh, big influence on my life as well and getting me into naval aviation. So that's... Uh, the history and heritage and legacy of uh, the Di Matteo aviators, but I feel incredibly fortunate. And he started, uh, he, he was with the Sundowner Squadron, and so I was fortunate enough uh, when I was skipper of VFC 13, uh, we ended up starting a, a permanent detachment down in Key West, and then CNAF at the time, Commander Naval Air Forces, and CAG said, hey, we have to come up with a name for the squadron down in uh, Key West. And so I kind of pitched a couple different examples. I was the commanding officer at the time, mm -hmm. pitched a couple different examples or suggestions and said, you know, it'd be kind of cool with Sundowners. One, you know, Duval Street and Key West as a very, they're famous for their sunset. Right. Uh, additionally, it was the most prolific best fighter squadron on the West in the Pacific fleet uh, for a long time. They had a great group of people that were former sundowners so they had a strong alumni association and oh by the way my dad was part of the first one so it'd be kind of cool if his son was part to, <laughs> resurrected it and uh cnaf at the time vice admiral zortman said that sounds great and so yeah. we were able to call it vfc 111 and yeah. now the sundowners are back alive and well is there any controversy dare i even ask guido around the name because right it's a little bit non-politically correct. Uh, the idea was that the uh, land of the rising sun, who we were in battle with in the 40s, yep. the name was, was kind of based on that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, I guess, I don't know, times have changed a little bit. I have this great drinking shirt from my father in 1945. It's hanging in the ready room down in the Sundowners right now. It, it was different. They were in war yeah. at the time, yeah. and uh, the rising sun wanted to take over the world, and right. they, in their squadron of young fighter pilots, they called, it said killers all, and they said, uh, if you're taking over the world, you have to come through us. We're going to down the rising sun. And that's where the sundowners came from. An admiral once, when I made the name change down in Key West, he said, 
this was called the sundowners because the men worked from sunup to sundown. <laughs> the men and women worked right. from sunup to sundown in the squadron. And uh, one of my good memories was my, my dad coming up, son, you know, and he goes, I don't care how many stars are on your shoulder. It doesn't give you the right to change history because we were called the sundowners because we were stopping the rising sun. He goes, if we worked uh, from sunup to sundown, we'd call that a half a day. And there were no damn women in our squadron. So that was my dad's little <laughs> thing. So politically incorrect. Sorry, we're starting off that way. I know, but sorry, I brought it up. It, it was... Uh, well, the world it, has changed, and now we have this is. feeling like we're supposed to be sorry for all these things that happened. But, right, like you said, I mean, that was Japanese imperialism. We're friends now, and that's good. But Absolutely. at the time, they were conquering basically most of the Pacific. and Kill or be killed. And so yeah. they were warriors back then, and yep. you and I have a great appreciation. Most naval aviators do. Uh, you know, we stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before us, and I'm fortunate one of them on, was my father, but your father, all our fathers yeah. and, and mothers and uncles and all those those individuals really paved the way for our freedoms yeah. today. And so was everything politically correct? No, but they won. And now we're here yeah. in the free and alive. True. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate you mentioning it. My father was a foot soldier in Europe. Yeah. yeah he was in Patton's Third Army. Wow. Fought at the, fought at the Battle of the Bulge. Wow. And uh, See? yeah, he didn't like to talk about it after. So yeah. we didn't get very many stories, but uh, we weren't as close as it sounds like you are. Is your dad well, local? Uh, Walnut Creek, San Francisco Bay okay. Area. And he never, it was interesting, He, my whole life, he never said anything about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally as a as a naval aviator, I would say, holy cow, this happened to me today. It key a memory. And uh-huh. he wasn't trying to outdo me, but he'd be like, because <laughs> I'll never forget the F-14. We had this uh, at night, this little red filter that went over the instrument panel to kind of give it the the night vision not as fancy as it is stuff today so you had to put this on and we tape it up and (laughs) so i take this cat shot off the front of the the ship and this filter comes back into my lap (laughs) bright green i get blinded i over rotate coming off the the cat good thing we had ge engines in the tomcat there probably would have stalled just i couldn't see anything i just wanted to get away from the ground of course i say to my dad later on i'm like yeah man this was this crazy got this cat shot this happened i was scared and he's of course this is i'm i don't know 30 years old and it's the first time he goes i remember when i uh i got a cold it was right when they first started these cat types hydraulics and and they yeah and it was like a hammer getting hit and it broke something in the engine and he just at night he was a night fighter on one of his cruises uh and he was in a corsair and he just crashed in in the water water, right Right in front front of the ship yeah and he's like i know i I felt kind of bad (laughs) that that i was complaining about a little bit of green light and he goes uh because they would fly with the do their the launch with their canopy open just in case something like this happened and he hit the water and survived and he got out and he had his may west and he kind of you know obviously some shock and he Mm kind of gets out of the plane and he's like i lived and then he turns around and he sees (laughs) you know the the carrier bearing down bearing down on him and uh you know fortunately they did the little turn and you know got out of his way and then uh the little starboard d the helicopter came over picked him up brought him back to the carrier 
and crazy enough that this is he's, they said they brought him back and you know the the skipper everybody met him the doc and everything and he was 100 percent fine and they knew what the issue was and they had him go change and go back out and <laughs> no meet the yeah meet because they do like six hour oh missions on these yeah. these night fighter missions wow. so yeah it made my little gr- yeah, filter yeah. thing seem kind of well, little. I mean, but that, that was the drama that you had. You just you didn't know what to compare it to. But <laughs> my goodness. So you already talked about flying the F-14. Let's get to that, but let's fill in the gaps. Did you know you wanted to be a pilot because your dad? And then what was the course you took to get there? I uh, And I really respect this, and I'm trying to do this with my son and daughter, but basically my son right now, who's uh, a freshman in UCLA. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, go Bruins. And he, um, so my dad was a naval aviator. My older brother became a naval aviator. And both of them went out of their way not to put pressure on me to do that. Mm -hmm. If I chose that path, then so be it. And they would support it. But there was no great Santini finger in the chest (laughs) trying to push me to go do that. And I really respect that. And I'm carrying through with that same thing with my son, Nico. If they want to do it, like you with your kids, we'll be there in full support but there's no pressure uh, to do that. And so my brother was older than me and he came and we have a place up in Montana. And again, this is probably, um, it doesn't matter now, but (laughs) he, so he came and did a little air show for Ah. us on Flathead Lake and, you know, kind of, he was an A6 at the time. So they just buzzed around and did some stuff. And I just remember as a young high school kid at the time, looking up going like, holy cow, I want to do that. And the one piece of information my dad did suggest, which I carry into my life, is it's better to have tried something that you potentially want to do and fail, if that's the word, or not pursue that, Mm -hmm. than never to have tried and then regret for the rest of your life not trying to do something. And so with that, I did not do ROTC or anything like that. Mm. He said... uh, just kind of keeping the because I wanted to be an aviator, and if, it, if, if aviation didn't work, I didn't necessarily want to go uh, down another path, and so that took me into AOCS and went there, and that's where it all kind of okay. started. So, well, I think you make a good point, and I hope if there are any parents out there watching or listening that they take this to heart because this, as you know, right, I don't have to tell you, but for everyone else, this job is so difficult and there's so much hard work and so many sacrifices being away from family and the risk to your own life. If you don't want to do it for yourself, you got to really, it's got to be internal. It can't be externalized on you. Yeah. hundred percent. I think you probably get a lot of these questions too. A lot of kids come and ask me about new aviation especially in the college world is like, mm-hmm. should I go to the academy? You know, and I'm like, I'm happy to talk to you, but it's got to be you. Yeah. Don't do it for your mom or your dad or yeah. your uncle or your grandpa because they'll wash you out. If it's not your own gut, your own grit that's going to get you through, you won't make it. And then you'll regret it and you don't, you don't want it to go down that path. So, yeah, I credit my father for uh, being a good dad. Uh, I'm trying to follow in that and uh, keep the pressure off my kid. Yeah. Any hint, Some pressure, though, but any hint because I don't think any of the three of mine are going to do it that I can tell right now. But. It's interesting, I because I literally just finished his freshman year a week ago, right? Because okay. UCLA's on quarters, and he um, he gets asked all the time by my friends right. and our collective friends, mm-hmm. uh, "Hey, are you going to do this?" And he kind of is like, "I don't know, maybe." And 
that being said, what I told them was like, hey, go, go to college, go have fun, go learn, chase your dream. And if your dream ends up being aviation, for sure, I can help <laughs> at <right>. that point. <laughs> but there's no pressure to steer it that way. Right. But if it ends up going down that path, of course, yeah. you know, we'll be able to reach out and touch some stuff. And I told you before, so this summer is actually a pretty cool aviation kind of related internship, if you will, for him with Red Bull Aviation, with uh, the Breitling, former Breitling jet team, with their Zermatt and a bunch of stuff that we're doing. So maybe it's a bug. You caught the bug. I caught the bug. Maybe he catches it. Maybe he doesn't. It's uh, whatever he wants to do. He has his own path through life, and it may not look anything like yours, but it could, just like yours did for your dad. That's cool. So you went to Berkeley and got to AOCS, did well there, went to flight school, did well there. Did you select the F-14 straight out of the training command? I did. I was uh, fortunate at the time uh, that movie, what was that movie called? Iron Eagle. Iron Eagle, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Top Gun had just come out. Okay. Uh, so let's just say it was a pretty powerful movie for a young little ensign mm-hmm. uh, going through flight school. And so uh, fortunately I had a situation where I could could choose it. It was interesting because they were just selecting, when I was going through, they just started some uh, F-18 slots. And that sounds like I'm arrogant here, but, but I, it's good and bad to – be at, at the top because you could you get your choice but then you also blame yourself if you choose uh. poorly right <laughs> there's some benefit to having some happenstance happen and so I remember asking my brother and I'll never forget his input as he said I said should I go Tomcats or Hornets and he said if I were you I'd pick F-14s in San Diego he goes at most you're going to fly one hour a day that means you're going to spend 23 hours a day in San Diego, in San Diego, <laughs> in wherever you are. Yeah. And he goes, I'd much rather spend 23 hours a day in San Diego than in Lemoore. Sorry, <laughs> no offense to anybody, but that was his guidance to me. And yeah. I said, sounded good. And so we picked Tom Katz and came out to. People America. who watch or listen to this show are, I think, a small sample of the general population, which just seemed to love the Tomcat. And we had a whole spinoff podcast about it the f-14 tomcast i think you were on a show called what tomcast tales i mean yeah, everybody loves the f-14 was it as fun as it seemed well you know your yeah. your first jet when you get out to the fleet your first jet i probably know more about i still know more about that jet right now than any of the other jets i've flown <laughs> because when you're that student that yeah. first jet you know it absolutely inside and out because there's so much pressure on you to do everything it was the way I describe it. I've been fortunate to fly these five other fighter jets. The way I always make my analogy with the Tomcat is it's like the Harley Davidson. Just big. It's badass. Loud. It's loud. It's was it the best in combat. I don't know. We didn't. But it was cool just <laughs> to fly. And it just was like. Bum, 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 bum. It felt like you were just coming around in a, in a Harley Davidson. Uh-huh. Where the F-16 is kind of more like a Ferrari and the Hornets, I don't know, a Corvette or something. But it's like a Harley-Davidson. And so it was a lot of fun. I got to fly. We came in and um, it just turned to the F-14B, the GE engines. So I went through the RAG with the Pratt & Whitney engines and then went straight to uh, VF-211, the Checkmates. And we were flying with the the F-14B, the engines that were GE. And they had – it took a little while to 
retrofit everything. And so what ended up happening was they limited our ability to go to the aircraft carrier for a while. We had to flare our landings. So we're kind of yeah. like they called us TFS two eleven for a while because and we did lots of detachments. Tactical fighter squadron. Yeah, because <laughs> okay. the, the Air Force version. <laughs> our skipper at the time, you might remember him, Bad Bob Dan McCourt, uh, Top Gun bro, and mm-hmm. he uh, also did an exchange with the uh, Nellis guys uh, back in the day, and so he was like, "Hey, we are bogeys for hire." And so we, for a whole year, we just went from a detachment, detachment, detachment as the F-14B, you know, simulating the MiG-29 back then, I think we were were doing. So uh, it was a blast, though. It was a lot of fun. It was hard because it was not digital flight control. The engines are so far apart that any type of, you know, aircraft carrier landings were hard, especially at night. You didn't have a lot of room for error in size. The engines were nice and responsive. We had this thing called DLC, which, because you'd get a little nervous or a little amped up, and it would easily be able to over-control your power. And uh, it was pretty instantaneous power, and so you were jamming on the the DLC. But uh, it was a wonderful jet to fly, and Miramar was fantastic. And so I just I felt very fortunate. And I give my brother credit still to this day. Like, yep, you, you steered me in the right direction. Well, as I remember, uh, direct lift control, I think it was, was just something that kind of came up and spoiled some of the lift on exactly the wings. Right. And so it was a little just, roller on your, yeah, on your so stick. Just and it just down. Yep. So you didn't go to the boat initially, but you finally did go. And did you end up deploying in it, I would assume? Oh, it? yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and we went to Desert Storm. That's We oh, well. ended up, that's where uh, my first real cruise on the Nimitz to Desert Storm. So in okay. our sister squadron was VF-24 at the time. So we went out. We had a brand new... Two F-18 squadrons, new Prowlers, new E-2, you know, it was uh-huh. a state-of-the-art at the time yeah. air wing. So. But the F-14 in Desert Storm, not to go on a huge tangent here, didn't get a lot of action because it wasn't quite in the Bombcat business yet. Plus, the Air Force and the Navy hadn't figured out how to play well together yet, and it was sort of an Air Force show. 100%. So, From the air-to-air side, we were kind of relegated, in total honesty, we were relegated to, like, you could tell you guys go over here <laughs> yeah you guys guido you're really good to be right over on this cap but it was more the air force were driving the air to air for in large part right over iraq and then we were kind of more in a support role but what was interesting was we had the the higher number tomcat was also what we called the tarps squadron and so we were uh the tarps tomcats and so we would carry a tarps pod and as crazy as it sounds to do BDA. So I was a TARPS pilot as well. They designated, I think, three of us in the squadron. And so we would go to see what the BDA was real time before all the fancy, you know, some of the imagery with satellites and if there's cloud cover or whatever, which was kind of like, okay, we're going to come through, spool everybody up, drop a bunch of stuff, <laughs> and then Guido's going to come through and try to take pictures of it after everybody's yeah. upset. So yeah. those were the more interesting But stories. you didn't necessarily, not to take away from that story, I'm sure it was harrowing, but it wasn't I, that, that wasn't harrowing. new. I mean, they had done that in Vietnam, right? The RA-5s and Absolutely, yeah. RF-8s and a bunch of others would do the same thing and Usually they ran away from the escorts because just fire all the throttle and get through. And yeah, your speed is life or whatever they said. <laughs> it's like, I don't care if the picture's blurry. I did my job. I, I went over. Oh, my goodness. Did that 
tour, though? Was that the first and last time flying the Tomcat? Because you have a litany of aircraft, and as long as I've known you, I don't think I really know your story that well. But I'm guessing you go from that to probably uh, an adversary squadron next? Correct. So I came back to Miramar. I mean, that's where we were stationed. And so after all the cruises, all... My first fleet squadron was done, then went over to 126. And so it was uh, Top Gun 126. We shared hangars, aircraft, the whole thing. We were like their red air, if you will, at the time. We were flying the F-16N and then the A-4 Super Fox. So it was... (laughs) That must have been glorious. Yeah, by far. (laughs) That was, I think I had, in my logbook, I think I looked once and I had 500 hours and it was 500 sorties it was over 500 sorties because most of them were you know just hard charging bfm back in that day that was the big deal yeah yeah i used to be 6'2 before that that cruise (laughs) (laughs) it shot me down a good uh, six inches compressed (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so that was the f-16 in and the and the super fox and those were really those were fun jets to fly and you got very good at it, as you know. You get very, very good when you fly yeah. three times oh, a day. Oh, gosh, yeah. Had you flown the TA-4 in training? I flew the T-2 and then the TA-4 yeah, okay. in training. So Super Fox, uh, it had the P-408 engine, and it was the two-seater, the TA-4, was nothing like the Super Fox. You could bullseye it. Remember the cone of death or whatever mm-hmm. they'd talk about? Not in the in the Super Fox. You'd go right up. And it had so much power. So the things I re- would remember would be, so you're full power, rotate, you know, and you're just, your head's like this, right? You can't see anything. The canopy <laughs> goes up to here and you just have the little head. And somebody made the analogy of, uh, it's like you're on the grill of a car and you're just, <laughs> I mean, you don't see any <laughs> yeah, plane yeah. around you. You just, your head. Which made it funny because if you had to like do a cross country with a map, oh, gosh. You know, it was challenging. Yeah. But anyways, you'd rotate on the A four. You'd rotate in. The, Are we talking takeoff here? Yeah, takeoff. Okay. So you go full power, rotate in the Super Fox. You'd have to bring the power back at least halfway, raise the landing gear, and you couldn't touch the throttle until the gear were up because you would overspeed the gear. So you had to take off, pull a huge chunk of power off. <laughs> Because it was so powerful. Wow. And then in dogfighting, you know, you had those uh, slats that would come out. Gravity. Yeah, aerodynamic-wise. Yeah, yeah. And to come over the top, you would get about right here, and then you'd have to pull your power back. And you would just, the nose would, you hmm. get up like this. So a loop, say you're doing some vertical turning maneuver. Or something. Come out like this, and yeah. you pull the power back, and it would drop the nose. Because huh. if you left the power up, it just would go just like arc. that just yeah, yeah it'd well. take a lot longer so <laughs> it was a wonderfully fun airplane to fly the f-16n you flew the f-16 a and b a and b so the n was uh again super fun but people would always oh the n the f-16n that's like the beast of all beasts that's fantastic and it's like it is but if i had a choice because we would do we had lots of fuel and so we would bingo the fighters out and then it was always an alternate mission and it was just one v one v one v one v one and just with the other instructor and I much rather would have the Super Fox. Really? Because the F sixteen got on the limiter. So if you get in a phone booth with the A four, you can turn that around like this 
and the F-16, no matter how hard you pull. Oh, I tried. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, I, like, bruised my hand <laughs> pulling. And, you know, and then here's this little A-4 just maneuvering, wow. you know, and gunning you. So it was a fun, fun experience, a great tour. Yeah. Well, but back to your point, right? The TA-4 was a two-seater, different engine, and always flown, at least when I went through, with drop tanks. And the Super Fox, I never flew it, but it sounds amazing because single seat, bigger motor, no drop tanks probably most of the time. Yeah, we yeah. didn't do drop tanks wow. and much bigger number. I think the TA4 was like the P6 and then it was the P8 and for the normal A4. And then the Super Fox had the P408. And we had a, a Marine version, the Mike as well. That Is had that the, the one P408 with the hump? With the hump. Yeah, yep, okay. exactly. We had a couple of those. And aerodynamically, that cone of death or whatever, I think it's the you know, your center lift and the TA four was, had some challenges, but the super Fox people ask all the time, what was your favorite jet? And it's like, well, it's kind of like, what is your favorite car? Kind of depends what situation, what circumstance you felt in the super Fox. Again, if you remember the a four, the elevator was little and the whole empennage, the whole back end was controlled by your trim. Right. So when you flew, like, coming down like this on the back side, you're trimming. You're trim, 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 trim. You're pulling your stick back, but you're also trimming, and you're trimming forward. So you, you trim a lot, mm-hmm. which is crazy, because normally no other jet I ever trimmed anything with. So maneuvering, you would trim a lot. So you're flying, you're trimming, and then we have flaps, and you're controlling your flaps, half flap, full flap, no flap, <laughs> And so when there was a lot of stuff going on right. and your rudders and just you could maneuver like crazy. So when you got really good at it, which we did inevitably, sure. not because we're the best pilots, but when you fly it three times a day, every day, five days a week, you get good at it. I hope. <laughs> you, yeah. <laughs> even we got good at it. That whole kind of combination, it was like there was no digital flight control system. It was the your personal flight control system. That's right. It wasn't fly-by-wire, it was fly-by-guido. But you it, were over it there was, doing everything. But when you got good at it, it was very fulfilling. Yeah, it was super fun. And some of the Tomcat, I'll never forget the one Tomcat guy goes, he, we come in the brief and he goes, so Guido, are you in the F-16 or the A-4? I said, oh, the A-4. And he goes, ah, and he turns to his, his Rio as a young guy and he goes, well, we'll fly a single engine on this one to give Guido a shot. <laughs> and I just, I'm like, Okay, fight <laughs> ding, song. Ding. <laughs> I'm like, this one yeah. I'm personalizing now. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we would ever do such a thing. No. All Holy right. smokes. Yeah, sorry. All right, so, golly. Let's... I'd stay professional, though. No, uh, uh, of course. Um, so how many hours did you end up with in the F-14? Because uh, you didn't like... go back again. Uh, no, yeah, it was like okay. 1,300 hours okay. or so. so over 1,000. How about yeah. in the A-4 and the F-16? A-4 was about 1,000, just okay. under 1,000, and the F-16 was like five 600. Okay. Were you there, by the way? So I don't know where size was, but he was somewhere where they had like the Kefir, the F-21 or something. Were you anywhere near Yeah, that? so that was the East Coast version oh, okay. of what we had. So we were here, Miramar, Top okay. Gun. They were Oceana. And they had the Kefir back there. So. He would talk about doing like the hat trick. You know, he would have three yeah. flights in a day and he flew, I guess it was the Kefir, the A4, and maybe the F5, I want to say. I don't know. Yeah, he would and, do the, yeah, so okay. I talked about that. And he, uh, <laughs> we had a hat trick because we also did, and this is, it sounds silly, but it was fun. We had a, a T2 and we did the departure spin out of control flight program. And so in the T2, if you recall, 
super forgiving aircraft. Oh, yeah. And so both the pilots and the Rios would – we would get them into some type of departure, multiple different types of departure. They're flip-flopping around and they would physically have to go through their boldface – to do that, which sitting here to go through bold faces, you and I have done a thousand times in yeah. a brief, totally different than when your head slammed up against mm-hmm. and you're flip flopping around. And so it was a great program. Uh, I wish the Navy still did it as a pilot. It was super fun because it was just you go up blah, 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 and then you go, OK, you got it. <laughs> and then they flounder through their yeah, yeah. departure control, you know, bold face and whatever they did. It would recover. Very but docile it, aircraft. It, yeah. But it, it, it forced them to go through it in a really strenuous situation. And it, everybody walked out of that going like, okay, yeah, I got to take this a little more serious mm-hmm. if you really get flapped around like that. So so we would do the hat trick, F-16, A-4, and T-2. In general, though, we were supposed to fly two jets. That's right. what the right. Navy kind of said. The NATOPs called in two. At the end, I had three, but it was the F-18, A through D, and E and F, and they decided those were close enough yeah. that it, they counted that as one. But All right, I have to ask, off the record, how was the Buckeye in a dogfight? I'm sure you never did, but just, you know, theoretically. It was uh, – theoretically, <laughs> it would do really well because yeah. you could just pull until the thing <laughs> departed, and then you knew how exactly how to recover. Yeah. Hypothetically, of course, yeah. I could do that. You got to help me actually, because I'm, I'm writing my memoirs and I'm writing a part about the. Uh, remember, did you do like the gun profile in the T2 in flight school? Yep, exactly. Did it have like a little light you turned on, like a little gun reticle or something? It didn't have a gun, but did it have something you turned on, or did we just fake it and point at the banner? Uh, that's reaching back in All my right. memory well, cells, but I I, th- and... I know the A4 did, right? Because well, so we, we used did it for the A4 dropping, yeah. But I don't recall if the T2 did or didn't. I thought we turned didn't. something on, but maybe we just pointed at the banner. But I remember I sort of struggled through most phases because I was very blue-collar. But I did pretty well in the gun thing. And it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a, my, my favorite story in the gun pattern was, remember, you tried to bag hops. And as a student, there was a salty old guy in Kingsville. I don't know. He's like a 80-year-old. <laughs> That's my perception. Like yeah, yeah. 80-year-old commander. Uh-huh. You know, And he... Uh, he was the toe, the banner toe mm-hmm. in the T2. And so uh, as a student, you could like bag an extra hop and he would just, you'd just be his autopilot. So he'd get you up there and you'd just fly it 10,000 feet or whatever it was. And he's out there. He's the safety observer making kids, sure right. the kids don't run into each other or simul run. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm like back there and doing my little, trying to stay right on altitude. And I'm like, Sir, sir, there's smoke and fumes. I smell smoke and fumes in the cockpit. <laughs> I think I know where this is going. <laughs> and, and he goes, say again. And I go, sir, I smell smoke. I smell smoke in the cockpit. Smoke and fumes. <laughs> Our bull face procedure. Right, right. And I look up and he's got a mirror. And he looks and his visor's up and his mask is off. And he's like, <laughs> like that. <laughs> That's what I kind of guessed. Yeah, and I'm like, but it uh, used to, T2 had an ashtray yeah, in it. Yeah. So... That was that was during the T two gun pattern. Oh boy! When did you get to the F eighteen? And maybe that is that a segue now at the end of your shore tour as an aggressor. By the way, did, yeah. is that when you first went through Top Gun? Did you do yeah. that there? Okay. Yeah, yeah, was yeah. Initially was to was going to be in the fleet, and then Desert Storm started. Oh, and then came back, and then went in one twenty six, and then one twenty six. Kind of the timing was the Navy was doing. BRAC, the mm. base realignment and closure stuff. Right. And this is when 
the worst day in the world when the Marines took over <laughs> Miramar and they, they came down from they came down from El Toro and took over Miramar and then we sent the remaining Tomcats went back to the, the East Coast mm-hmm. and then everything else was Hornets and they stayed up in Lemoore. And so during this whole process, what ended up happening was they were shutting down. They said, hey, we're going to move the adversary role. So Top Gun, we're going to move this. At the time, it was just Top Gun right. and 126. We were just merged together to do mutual. They would do more of the lectures and the light blue T-shirt side of it, and we were the adversary for 90% of the sorties. And then they ended up saying, we're going to move this to Fallon, and we're going to go under this umbrella called INSOC and try to make it an Echelon 2 command, kind of like the Air Force did with Nellis. In doing so, we're going to get rid of the F-16Ns. They're going to go to the desert. The A-4s are going to go away, and we're going to uh, take in the F-18As and Bs to the adversary role. And so they sent me over as the active duty guy to go over to VFC-13 and run, at the time we called it FFARP, mm-hmm. it's SFARP now, but at the time it was Fleet Fighter, it was the F-14. Yeah, Fleet uh, Fighter ACM. Advanced Readiness Program, yeah. I think. So I went over as an active duty guy into this reserve squadron, and they were flying the F-18As. And so I went to El Toro and transitioned to the Hornet, and then came back and flew the Hornet for, you know, many years. And then we finished that, and when, when we went up to Fallon, they got rid of the Hornet, and we took the F-5. And was that your first time flying the F-5 then? That was the first time flying the F-5. My goodness. Well, that's quite a pedigree. I mean, that's all the big fighters, at least on the Navy side, modern. I didn't get the F-35, but the rest of them. <laughs> well, hey, you're still here. <laughs> I fight the F-35. Yeah. No, oh, yeah. Well, so. we'll get to that. So how many hours did you end up with in the F-18? About 800. Okay. And then I'm not going to ask about the F5 because that logbook is still open. But my goodness, okay. So when you so go, it's like 2,500 in there. Is it? Oh wow, that's great. All right. So then, at some point in here, though, do you decide this is all fun and games? But maybe there's other things I want to do in my life. Or at what point don't you kind of kick over to the reserves at some point? Yes. So well, I'm active duty for a while, and mm-hmm. then I go over to help. VFC 13 as their active duty guy for a couple years is run their FR program and uh, took a bite of the poisoned apple at that, <laughs> <laughs> at that point. Yeah. And I had just other entrepreneurial ambitions, yeah. as you do, of course, with this wonderful setup. Thank you. And I had always had, I had buddies in college where we were rugby guys, et cetera, and we were teammates. And one guy really started a great uh, restaurant and bar and nightclub in San Francisco and he was a frat buddy of mine and a rugby teammate of mine and really still to this day one of my best friends and uh, it was Johnny Love because we were like the love brothers on this rugby team which was kind of a just a scam to hit on girls during you know (laughs) do you want to be part of the love family you could be a love brother a love sister Kathy by the way my wife was one of the original love sisters so well I hope the last for you, dare I say, on camera. Say again? <laughs> there wasn't another one after her, I hope. No, 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 not at all. 
Cut, cut. <laughs> Is that what my face said? No. Well, the, you said she was one of them, so I was just well, trying she, to. Yes. No, she's the only one. Clarify. Thank you. All right. She, yes. All right. Yes. We're back on track. <laughs> and you've got your rugby ball over there behind you on the shelf, so. Uh, yeah. 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 Can, Isn't that something about? you can grow old playing? Don't people play that long into life? They do, and uh, rugby was uh, was a huge part of my life, and uh, still is a huge part of my life. Actually, right. in college, was fortunate to to go to Cal, and uh, I was in a frat that a lot of the guys were rugby guys, and mm-hmm. said, "Come on out. This is uh, you look like you'd be good at this. Uh, it's kind of a combination of soccer and football at the same time." Cal happened to be, unbeknownst to me at the time, because I didn't really know much about the sport. They were the dominant team in the world from a collegiate perspective, as they still are today. So won three national championships when I was in college. Love, love, love the sport. From a cultural perspective, what rugby, I think, brings different than American sports like baseball or football, you tend to, the coaches are like, you know, in football, and it's like you're supposed to hate and kill the guy before the game, during the game, after the game. And rugby's a completely different culture it is we say there's three halves the first two are on the field the third one the home team has to this is on international on a high school on a grade school level has to have a party for the visiting team nice and so food beverage so the little kids will put hot dogs hamburgers and soda pops out and all the families come so you just are beating the you know, snot out of each other on the field, and then you have to whistle blows, and you got to come and you got to yeah. share a meal, and you realize very quickly what sportsmanship is all about. Yeah. And so I continued. I was fortunate. I continued to play on some national teams after when I was in the Navy, which, depending on the skippers, whether they allowed me to do it or not do it, and injuries and stuff like that was interesting. And then fast forward, my son started growing up and loves the sport. He's playing at UCLA right now. He won national championship in high school year before and you know loves the sport as well and again it's more of i tell people all the time i learned more in college about life from the rugby team and the rugby pitch and on the field and being with that team than i did in a classroom when it comes to overcoming adversity and being a teammate and grit and leadership and following people and getting along with people and you know what it takes to work yourself up to be at a the highest level performance which translated into being a fighter pilot and so yes i love the uh love the <laughs> sport and i'm fortunate that my son is uh you know maybe i pushed a little bit on that <laughs> side of it but well, hey, you only promised you wouldn't push the fighter, the fighter pilot yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. right. Well, it's good to have something a father and son can share he oh, loves it too good, so good. he that's good yeah well and i have a listener question coming up about rugby and air combat so let's come okay. back to that so you go up to fallon you know fallon's a, an acquired taste for some but i liked it up there mm-hmm. do you kind of stay there for a while because you end up commanding vfc 13 yeah, so this now enter the kind of the quasi-reservist kind of world where I was running bars and restaurants down here in San Diego with Jimmy Loves initially. Started out with that one and kind of doing the fighter pilot in the day and bar owner at night, which... Uh, sleep can happen later. <laughs> <laughs> when you're dead. You can sleep when okay. you're dead. So that was kind of the how that transitioned and got me balancing the life of... Naval aviation plus entrepreneurialism at the same time. 
my commanding officers and CAG were very, they're kind of like, hey, don't know if this is going to work. This isn't normal. But if you, as long as you do it to the level that we need you to do it at, then right. it will work. And so I kind of balanced both of those for a while. It was easier when Jimmy Loves was here in San Diego and we were still flying out of Miramar. When we went to Fallon, that made the, the transit was a little bit more difficult. So what I ended up doing interesting in in our location here i bought a uh, piper meridian it's like a tbm it's got a pt6 engine jet prop kind of capability so it's a turbine engine kept it right here that hangar right out there would literally drive out of my house be here within a half an hour be in fallon within an hour and 15 minutes and at a brief and and flying up there. So uh, would do that usually like three or four days and then, you know, kind of come back. Uh-huh. And so that worked out extremely well from a family perspective and kind of juggling those two balls. So yeah. Kathy and the kids stayed here and then I kind of transit back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Uh, so that made it kind of easier to do it with your own plane. Because the airline guys, there was first, there was Reno Air, if you remember that. I don't. They got bought up by American Airlines. Okay. And then routes changed, and now really, even now, Southwest is like the only way to get there direct. Oh, and you still have an hour drive when you get to the Reno Airport. 100%. So if you can take yourself right to Fallon Muni. And we had the deal. Uh, Roy Rogers was skipper back then. Yeah. and uh, He let you park it, on the base? Well, not to be obnoxious, <laughs> what I said was I kept a beater car at Fallon Muni and would land at Fallon Muni if it was bad weather and it was kind of outside of from a risk perspective and I wanted a big long or not so much long but a big wide runway mm-hmm. at at uh, Fallon a 200 foot wide runway he said yeah just go ahead land here I got all the insurance and rights and then I'd go park it over at the transient line and mm-hmm. kind of keep it away from everybody I, I wasn't the obnoxious skipper taxiing up in my right up. <laughs> all next to the, the hornets and yeah <laughs> no I tried not to do that oh dear all right I don't know where we are in, in history now, but at some point you are down at CNAF, as we've identified earlier, here in San Diego. So your family mm-hmm. is here. So that was great. And you're still flying. And I know all this because we had a spinoff podcast called The Merge a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And we featured you as uh, one of the guests talking about a story of a mishap, which was very mm-hmm. tragic because it was fatal. Uh, but you were still flying. And that was, I want to say, 2008. Yeah, that was after. So after I... So I commanded the fighter squadron or the adversary squadron up in uh, Fallon, and that's when we also started BFC-111, the Sundowners. Okay. So we were, from a Navy perspective, we were flying around 7,000 hours, adversary hours, in the squadron per year, which is a lot. Okay. And 1,000 of those hours were transit down to Key West to support the East Coast squadrons out of Key West. And so it was. It made a big a business sense to say, let's resurrect a adversary squadron. Used to have one down in, in Key West. They really need one down in Key West. So at one point, I was the commanding officer of both fighter squadrons. Wow, the 111 and and 13, which was unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, two different UX, the whole thing. <laughs> but it was, yeah. And the restaurant. And the restaurant. <laughs> and then after that command tour was done for both of those squadrons, I came here, Vice Admiral. Uh, Kilkline, Killer yeah. Kilkline. He was a former FI in uh, Top Gun Adversary guy as well. 
And so we ended up chatting with him. And when he got designated for CNAF, we said, hey, what better way to be the commander of Naval Air Forces and to be able to ascertain the capabilities of your Air Force than if you're the adversary guy in the red air side fighting them? And so he came before he was coming to CNAF. He came, got rehacked in the F-5. I came down here to CNAF and ran the adversary program, all of it from uh, the, at the time, INSOC to the Navy and Marine Corps as well. It kind of all fell under the CNAF umbrella. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, he's like, hey, Guido, you, you helped justify. They'll bring a jet down, and then we would go out and fight the jets coming off, the fighters coming off, the aircraft carriers for the mm -hmm. Comp-2Xs and the different exercises right. down here. Leading and to deployment. It, mm -hmm. Exactly. And so it worked out well. He got to, to fly. I got to continue to fly. That was post-command for quite a while, and then I retired out of that job. What year was that? I think 2013. 13, okay. And I'm trying to think when we first crossed paths, because I was at Fallon on the N7 staff from 2000 to 2002. Mm -hmm. Were you at 13 at that time? I was. Okay, I was, so probably then. Yeah, if and, you turn around and let me look at the back of your head, I know exactly... <laughs> Well, I'd have to get my helmet on yeah, over yeah. here. Still has dent marks from the bullets. Thanks, Greta. Um, and then in 06 to 09, I was at the weapons school in Lemoore. We did a lot of VESFARPs. Yep. And 13 helped us a lot there. So I know exactly. our, our paths crossed many times. So Absolutely. Plus, we both live on Coronado, so that's not a bad gig. You are just a, uh, what's that expression, like a polymath? You know, like you, you're good at like a lot of different things, or at least you do a lot of different things, but sounds like Bad. you're very good at all them. And you didn't, good at them. You didn't, quote unquote, retire. You just moved on to something else because I've got written down here like in, well, hold on. You said you retired in 13, but in 2007, according to my notes, you were the first and only U.S. race director for the International Red Bull Air Races. Correct. All right. Tell me about that. So that was a fun. Do you know Red Boy Races? You know, I do, them but about? explain briefly for maybe those who aren't familiar. Yeah, so it's uh, it was one of the the most fun things I've done in aviation. It's it, uh, it 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 combined because normally fighter pilots are about the only situation you can fly and compete at the same time, mm -hmm. right? Push yourself to the absolute edge of your skill set and capability and compete against somebody else. An air show, you can push yourself to the edge, but you're not really competing with somebody else. Right. So when uh, Red Bull Air Race came along, that was the only other thing I've ever seen where you're flying your skills and you're really competing against another person, pushing the edge of the envelope in a competition-type perspective. So it was interesting, kind of a funny story. I got called, I was with the San Diego Sports Council at the time, it's a local organization that we run all professional collegiate amateur and Olympic sports. So the Padres, the Chargers back then, getting to ballparks, all those kind of the business aspect of sports. And it was a wonderful board of directors that I uh, got to sit on. Somebody called them and said, hey, we have this new sport. It's from Europe. It's flying and it's racing and it's doing this crazy stuff and it's sponsored by Red Bull. And we heard you guys are you know great at uh, helping businesses work through this. And the executive director at the time was like, oh my God, we got a guy on our board that's some Top Gun, blah, 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 and <laughs> you should talk to him. And so I get a call from this guy and he's got a 
Red Bull's from Austria, but he's got a you know heavy German accent, and he's like, you know, I want to come down and you know talk to you. And I didn't know at the time. You might remember this. Red Bull had a, a U.S. Red Bull had a MiG seventeen mm-hmm. that they were flying on the air show circuit. Yeah. And I thought, oh, the guy's going to come down and ask me if I because I'm still currently flying. I was I think it was the XO at the time or CO or XO or something like that up there. And I thought they're going to ask me to do that because I really didn't know that much about Red Bull Air Race. And so he comes down and we meet. And he flips open this laptop, and it's a race through Budapest on the Danube River, flying underneath the chain bridge. The House of Parliament's right there, just pulling 12 Gs, 20 feet <laughs> off the water, doing just crazy stuff. 850,000 people in attendance. Wow. And he's like, this is a Red Boy race, and we want to bring it to America. This is the House of Parliament. We race through you know, this exact thing, so we want to race in front of the White House. And the Statue of Liberty. And I went, oh, okay, well, this is America, and you're not going to be able to race in front of the White House. I, no, no, never say never. I'm like, no, this one I can say never. <laughs> the Statue of Liberty, maybe, but not the White House. That You're not going to be able to do that. Well, look, here's the House of Parliament, and we really, we race right in front of it, 100 feet away. And... And so anyways, fast forward, he said, would you consider this? I said, I don't even really know what it is. And he said, well, in in three weeks we race in Budapest at this location and uh, we fly you out there and you come check it out. I went out there and I was just, my jaw dropped with everything because it combined everything I loved. It was the tactical aviation, you know, putting the jet at the absolute edge of the envelope in a competitive high speed dynamic way and a party <laughs> and so it was like jimmy loves meets top gun it was like this whole like combo merge and so i started with them and it then they said will you be the race director for the u.s races and help us there and i said i would and then i started to help them there and then they said hey actually this is working really well will you just take over be race director for Red Bull wow. and air race and run the rest of the world. And so we would do about uh, 10 races a year in the most exotic places in the world on the planet. And um, it was just spectacular. Yeah. The greatest group of uh, aviators, technicians, uh, maintainers, support team, staff, just, I mean, Red Bull just, as you can imagine, does things right. They have the money to do things right. And they were always, from a brand perspective, they said, you know, if we crash and kill people, say for analogous is like an, in the Reno Air Race, kind of that challenging situation that they had, it's not just damaging the Red Bull Air Race, it's damaging Red Bull. The brand. The brand, the yeah. global brand. Yeah. And so we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we mitigate risk as much as possible. So as crazy as it looked like, we were flying through cities and inside stadiums and as crazy as it was the details behind the scene mm-hmm. were just unbelievable i mean we you know red bull has the two formula 1 teams and so we'd work with them for monocoque cockpits to try to it, it was just a, not that money was no object it just they they spent the money necessary to make it a safe event and in over 90 air races that i ran we never had a death or an injury. Yeah. So it was a it was a very, very cool experience. And it kind of combined. It was the only thing other than fighter pilot 
world that yeah. I've ever experienced that had that kind of competitive. Yeah. You know, well, and it came to San Diego at least once. I saw it uh, in the Bay. Yeah, no, I brought it three times. Did you? Uh, okay. The first time uh, flew out of Brownfield, brought it in the Bay. The second time convinced the uh, commanding officer of North Island that we would land at North Island. So we actually did our whole setup at North Island, hmm. took off, flew right there. And then we took a break for a little bit and then came back maybe about six years ago or so and flew it in the Bay again. Hmm. So... The status of that right now, just real quickly, we mm-hmm. this little thing called COVID happened, and it uh, dramatically impacted, obviously, our ability to run huge events around yeah. the world. We were taking, we were doing a little organizational change, and Red Bull was going to go from being Red Bull Air Race to being like World Championship Air Race or Air Race Series or whatever, and Red Bull would have teams kind of like similar to how Formula One is run. We just finished the last race in Tokyo Bay. Narita and that that area right at Chiba and that was September and then in December COVID hit and we haven't gotten back on our feet yet there's some iterations of like maybe this will happen maybe that will happen Red Bull's kind of moved on a little bit of saying like mm-hmm. hey we'll we'll support and be part of something but we don't want to run the whole thing and uh, you really need a big animal like that to to be able to justify the money yeah. uh, for something like that. So whether it comes back or not, TBD. TBD. Yeah. What would you say, though, to – because I remember having guests on the show about the Reno Air Races since you brought it up. And one of the issues that they sort of bristled at uh, is that they are neck-to-neck racing, whereas the Red Bull Air Races are sort of solo, go out, race, get your best time, and then compare times. So is it just two different things, or did uh, – do the two different entities have a little bit of, which is usually good, right, to have a little well-intended, well-natured uh, bantering? That's a, a fantastic question, and I get asked that a million times. Yeah, okay. It really kind of goes back to the safety comment. To run a Reno Air Race style, which is kind of like a NASCAR style, mm-hmm. an oval track where guys are all kind of racing against each other. Have you flown in those? Or I've not flown ever, in it, but, but I've attended. seen it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's competitive, but it's very scripted. You call where you are and Mm -hmm. you move forward and you get approval to move forward. You get approval to pass somebody and stuff like that. And so it's competitive, but it's not just all out the maximum performance of anything uh, like you would see at NASCAR, for example, because crashing has a terrible result. And what we – there was one – before Red Bull Air Race, there was a, a group that tried to do something like Red Bull Air Race, kind of a, a hybrid mix of Red Bull plus Reno. And in the first race, two planes clipped each other and crashed. What we went for from a Red Bull perspective is we wanted to have a race in the most iconic backdrops on the planet. Literally, the best scenarios, scenes anything on the planet and so we couldn't afford to have planes hitting each other and crashing and going into a hundred thousand people mm-hmm. the other thing is mr mattishitz that was owner of uh, of red bull he wanted to be able to see the entire race by sitting in one seat so unlike formula one where you hear new 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 and then they go <laughs> away a for a minute and then new 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 he said his one of his uh Precepts was to say, 
I want to sit in a seat and I want to watch this entire race, you know, right in front of me. So they are being from Austria. Their sports are they're huge downhill skiers. And so their concept, you know, the downhills, for example, one guy goes against the clock. Right. And then the next guy goes against the clock. And that's the competition. You, you go through the course as fast as you humanly can go. But it's one at a time. And so that's how kind of that evolved. And and really, he wanted the iconic backdrop, the guy, not 98%, but 100%, you know, pushing the extreme of what he can get. And that bodes well for the brand itself of Red Bull, right? It's an energy drink, right. and it's about thrill, yeah. kind of high adrenaline kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if it comes back. I'm imagining at this point it's just a business decision because they've done it and they proved that it works and people enjoy it. But maybe it's not a bad thing to just say, hey, you know, we did that and now we're on to something else. So I guess we'll see. And Red Bull does that. They yeah. what they their branding philosophy, if you will, is they don't tend to do a ton of TV and print media. They sponsor athletes and they they create sports mm-hmm. and they kind of that's their approach, which is used to be, you know, the only people on the planet doing it that way. Now other people saw how they've, successful they've Red created Bull was. the standard, really, and and yeah. they they're doing that too. So we'll see. There's a lot of lines in the water, and lots of people are nibbling at different things, and okay. uh, we'll see if it comes back. Well, so now we're in this phase of the discussion where I'm just going to keep rattling off these different, I don't want to say achievements, but certainly they are, and th- different things you've done. In 2011, if I remember correctly, we celebrated the 100th anniversary or the centennial of naval aviation, and here again was Guido deep in it. <laughs> it was uh, yeah, Kona, centennial of naval aviation. Right. We uh, That was Admiral Kilkline and uh, Admiral Sizemore were were CNAF and Chief of Staff. That was when uh, Size was uh, Chief of Staff. And the 100th anniversary was coming up, and I was there on the staff with them. And it was just a timing situation. And Killer Kilkline is like, hey, Guido, you do aviation, and you run these restaurants and bars, and <laughs> you do these things, and you're part of the sports council. Why don't you uh, – so I was part of the – with the sports council, I helped with a couple of Super Bowls that were here in San Diego too. And so we kind of did a – he asked me if I could, would run that, and I kind of replicated what our Super Bowl host committee looked like and tagged almost all the same people that helped with the Super Bowl host committee as the civilian guys and then kind of paired them up as a wingman with active duty Navy guys and gals to say, mm-hmm. okay, here's legal Joe Blow, big time lawyer in San Diego that ran the Super Bowl. Oh, here's a JAG. Okay, so now you're going to be married up and you both are going to be, you know, co-legal committee chairs or whatever. And so we went down that path and that was super fun. I love the history and heritage legacy of because my my family, etc. And um, we had the kickoff event here in San Diego, 16 events. And then we had the finale event in Washington, D.C. And um, it was uh, to really to pay tribute to this incredible uh, life that you and I get to be part of. Oh, yes. And so many have come before us and mm-hmm. so many uh I mean, just to think of the magnitude of what naval aviation has meant to our country, and so by doing the, being part of the hundredth anniversary, it was really a true honor for me to 
to be part of it. A lot of fun. It was. I was here, and uh, I have a photograph of my youngest, who's now in high school, in a little set of the Digi Blue Camleys, uh, walking under the Super Hornet that was painted like that. So it was like a air show with like the static demos at North Island, but then they also had the generational aircraft fly up the bay, which probably was its own coordination issue because right there is Lindbergh International, so you had to stay clear of all that. But I just yeah. remember, okay, here come World War II airplanes, here come Vietnam. Here yeah, come... we had lots amazing. of the Marines helped with that part of it, the flyby, and what really helped me coordinate that was I had already done the Red Bull Air Race in the bay, Okay, so I had all the rules, requirements, relationships with all the FAA, North Mm -hmm. Island, Lindbergh Field, even Petco Park, all the stuff. But we did have, I remember we had at the very end, we had a huge, we tried to simulate that that photo at CNAP with all the planes flying over North Island. And I forget how many we had, but we had a ton. Sarge Slaughter, I think, was part of it too. A ton of airplanes, fighter jets fly over and just the sound was I'll never forget the sound I mean when you 50 jets yeah yeah it was pretty impressive thankfully it was in peacetime it's not something you want to hear uh, no it was pretty intimidating though if it it was flying over your country and then we finished it in uh, in Washington D.C. with the incredible gala that was very fitting lots of different countries came you know with their entourages of highfalutin presidents and generals and stuff like that. So it was uh, it was an organizational challenge yeah. to do the seating chart, which uh, pretty, uh, if we have a second, I'll, I'll tell a pretty funny story. I like this story. So we had, uh, it was the head table and it was my wife and I, remember Thomas Hudner? Mm-hmm. Thomas Hudner was the uh, only living Naval Aviation recipient of the Medal of Honor at the time. And so he and his wife were sitting here Prince Andrew, if you remember Prince Andrew from the UK, he was their rep. John McCain was sitting at the table right here. And then the Secretary of Defense was Leon Panetta. And then we had Boeing and Lockheed Martin. And there were two, their CEOs. And right before, like literally a week before the event, Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta said, I can't sit and have dinner Uh, with, you know, a leader of industry like that. I mean, we can socialize and stuff, but just literally sitting next to is probably pushing it too much. Holy cow. This is this seating (laughs) charts. You move one chess piece and it's there's a 1500 people in this event. It just starts to collapse. I'm like, well, now who's going to be. Who's significant enough but not significant enough to be at the head table of the Centennial Naval Aviation with one week left? Nice. And so I'm like, okay. And I didn't want to affect any of the other tables because it would have just been a colossal event Did you get a crisis. couple of JOs or something? <laughs> no. So I, I thought, well, Blue Angel. So ah. I called Stiffy McWhirter. He was the commanding officer of the Blue Angel. And I'm like, hey, Stiffy, what are you doing next week? <laughs> I'm like, you want to come to have a you know party? And believe me, you're going to get approved for this. So, you know, bring a blue jet up. It'd be pretty cool. And then Chris Ferguson, who was the last commanding officer, naval aviator, checkmate, and last commanding officer of the space shuttle. So he flew the last space shuttle. So they're NASA astronaut, Blue Angel. There you go. 
not too big, but not, you know, <laughs> kind of worthy, if you will, of the table. So yeah. the funny part was, so there was Prince Andrew. So during the dinner, I'd look over, because Chris Ferguson's call sign is Fergie. Well, I totally forgot that his ex-wife oh, was no. Fergie, of the Fergie for Prince Andrew. So you might not even know this, because I kind of did not. And so about halfway through the whole dinner, Prince Andrew kind of stops everything. He's like, please, call him anything you want, but stop <laughs> calling him Fergie. Every time that happens, you send a chill up my spine because I think I'm going to see the redhead you know, come walking in. So some of your other listeners might oh, uh, get boy. a fun kick out of that. But yeah, anyways, that was a Centennial Naval Aviation. Fun times. Wow. Attention veterans, obtaining the right medical evidence could make a significant impact on your disability rating. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with paperwork, or you may have no idea how to get started. If your disability rating is at or below 90%, AllVeteran.com is here to help. AllVeteran is a powerful resource that can help you collect the needed medical evidence to support your service-connected disability and potentially increase your rating. Simply visit info.allveteran.com forward slash jello and fill out the form. It only takes a minute. Soon after, you'll be connected with medical specialists who have helped thousands of veterans gather the evidence needed to accurately increase their disability rating. No hassle, just a straightforward way to accurately support your VA disability rating. An increased rating may be easily within your reach thanks to this valuable resource committed to ensuring you receive the benefits you rightfully earned. Get started today by visiting info.allveteran.com forward slash J-E-L-L-O. Well, golly, we could keep going. I hope you got plenty of time because the next thing right, I want to ask you about, we doing okay? Yeah. Next thing I want to ask about is in 2012, sounds like you helped revamp and run one of the largest aviation events in the world, Air Venture in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Yeah. So was... again, right, you're, you're this guy who gets things done. Uh, you're kind of like Red in Shawshank Redemption. Like <laughs> if it's an aviation thing you need to get done, you go to you. Well, it was, I, was, I was fortunate. That it was uh, kind of just a lucky guy in the right place at the right time. Sadly, it started from the Reno Air Race crash. And the NTSB had a big investigation. Was this the P-51 scalloping ghost or something? No, the, yeah, the, the Reno Air Race crash. Right. Yeah, so what ended up happening after the crash, because it killed people, it right. hit the crowd. Yep. It, it was really was fortunate because it didn't explode, and so it killed a smaller amount of people. There were hundreds of people that were doused with fuel that if that had exploded, it would have been really Yikes. bad. But it was a tragic event. And so the NTSB and the FAA, everybody was massive investigation, as you can imagine, and legal issues. And so the NTSB calls me up and says, hey, you're an American. You run this thing called the Red Bull Air Race. This is a Reno Air Race. We'd like you to come testify in front of this committee. And I'm like, okay. So GAMA, the General Aviation Maintenance Association or Material Association, something, they were kind of heading it up because they're a DC organization. And they said, yeah, this would be very beneficial if you could come and help. And I'm like, what is, I mean, this is like the big green table and yeah. Congress kind of, you know, <laughs> stuff. And, I didn't know it was a politically assigned event, and I never knew that about the NTSB, but there's like five board members and two are Republican, two are Democrat, and then the president picks the chairperson because it impacts 
rules and regulations, and that impacts politics and yeah. you know all that other stuff. So it was quite fascinating to experience. There was a couple other guys there, like Sean Tucker was there. I was there, and the guy who was running Oshkosh, EAA Oshkosh, a guy named Murad Hightower. So we were together for a few days, and he said it was right after we took a little break with Red Bull to adjust like our pylons and stuff like that. And he said, hey, would you come run with your experience? Would you come run the Oshkosh, the EAA uh, features in Air Venture and features in Traction? And I like, <laughs> I kind of hadn't been, which was but I, I called buddies of mine that I knew really well, Mikey Goulian, some guys that were with me and with Red Bull, and they're like, oh, my God, Guido, yeah, you got to do this. This is – it's like nothing you've ever experienced. And it really was like nothing I ever experienced. And so I did that for three years, and it was, it was wonderful because it's – have you been there? I've not. It is the mecca for aviation. Right. It's got civilian aviation. It's got general aviation. There were not a lot of military aviation stuff. None of it would get approved today because it's just it's so small. 65 years, now 70 years in the making, it evolved over time because mm -hmm. if you went to the FAA right now and said, I want to do this right here in San Diego, <laughs> there's zero percent chance that yeah. you would be able to do it. But it's fantastic. It's the busiest airport in the world, 10,000 takeoff and landings in one week time. We have two crossing runways dots on each runway where three planes are landing on each runway at the same time you land get under control and then go off into the grass and get taxied into an area and people sleep underneath their planes that's just part of it the other part of it is there's 800 and plus kind of briefings from everything you could ever imagine from the type of airplanes to maintenance on an airplane to, of course, Experiment Aircraft Association had a lot of builders and stuff like that to concert. We did concerts every night, movies. There's a theater in the woods, humongous giant screens. We play aviation-related movies and have discussions beforehand. And then pretty much every single company involved in aviation is there. So it's the one-stop shop around the world. If you're Honda Jet and you want to show your latest and greatest that's where you do it hmm. every reporter is there so it's like the one-stop shop and so i went there and i fell in love with it but the one thing that i did recognize being a military fighter guy is there was no fighter aviation there would be an occasional military plane here or there but they weren't allowed to fly there because the box the aerobatic box was too small hmm. and so the Blues had never performed. The Thunderbirds had never performed. No tech demos would go there. And I thought, hey, we could kind of play the trifecta, commercial aviation, general aviation. I mean, commercial aviation, the biggest planes in the world would come and land there. The Concord would come do flybys and land well. there. And so I'm like, if we could add the military aspect. And so on the, the other side of the field where they have Oshkosh truck and some houses, et cetera, I'm like, well, what if we just – bribe them <laughs> not extort them but if we bribe them we sweeten the pot so i said i'm gonna i can move the box out we could take the businesses create a big party tent over here we'll bus everybody there we'll give you free booze and food and sandwiches and sodas and everything we'll just be there for the like one hour that the blues and the thunderbirds and the tech demo needs to 
the the increased display box and so that worked well and uh it's been a fixture ever since and so that's how they do it and then i also added some big jumbotrons because they had Jetman. do you know who Jetman is is it the um, guy with the pack that can yeah eve rossi okay so i brought him and i'm like you know we're not not gonna be able to see anything unless we have jumbotrons that can kind of see it and that's the new way of being able to appreciate all the stuff you know it extremely well and so uh that was a big part of the kickoff start and did that for three years until the Brightling Jet team. Is it still roughly what you made it into or is it even progressive? Well, I wouldn't say I made it into it. Thousands of people have been involved in that for a long time. And, you know, I was, I'm proud to say that I added a little bit to it and it's something you should see. It is a bucket list item. Yeah. For anybody who is in a, any part of aviation, yeah. it's it's just cool. It's a cool – it's that homegrown American mm. spirit, and it's connected to aviation. And yeah. so it's you'll love it. I've had listeners and viewers reach out and say, I can't believe you've never been. You know, I'll just show up at the airport. I'll pick you up, take care of you. I just haven't been able to make it work, and it's probably you too should, late for this year. Probably so. too late for this year, but something I might suggest is do a podcast there. Yeah. That yeah. would be – it would be really 2024. cool. 2024. There you go. Yeah. As people are maybe watching or listening, it might have already gone by because it takes us usually a month to produce these episodes. But you and I are recording here at the end of June, so it hasn't yep. happened yet. But All right, so you alluded to it. You went on to the Breitling Jet Team, huh? Well, that was, again, just a lucky in the right place at the right time. Um, you can't attribute everything to that. Guido. Come on. <laughs> My wife says it's pure luck well, okay. across the board. She knows the uh, – okay. <laughs> Love Breitling, uh, although I'm wearing the IWC Top Gun watch here. So, so that, that's another story. <laughs> but I did that for you. Just oh, so you thank you. Like the patch. That's nice. I had Breitling. So for Red Bull Air Race, we would have what we call side acts. So we'd race some, and then we'd take a little break, like halftime. And then during that break, I'd have we called side acts, and I would do some – Depending on where we were, if it was in the bay, maybe I'd do boat racing or the jet ski guys or the little guys that do this or have Eve Rossi mm-hmm. do fly or power packs, something that was the aerobatic or Red Bull aerobatic helicopter, if you've seen us do that, in in uh, quite a few places throughout Europe in the Middle East, basically, mostly in Europe. But a lot of different of our race locations in Europe, the Breitling jet team would come and perform. The Breitling jet team flew or L-39s, and uh, they were they're just spectacular. Jacques Botelin is the commanding officer, if you will, the leader of the team. And for the most part, all the guys are French Air Force, Patrol de France, or Mirage 2000. They're all okay. air show and fighter guys. Super, super great group of guys. And they ran under the flag of Breitling jet team. So what ended up happening is one day I said, you know, you guys are, are fantastic. You should come to America. You should do a, a tour of, of the U.S. And they said, well, we would love to do that. We're going to do Asia and China, da, 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 and then maybe after that. And so uh, Teddy Schneider is the owner of Breitling. He calls me over to Switzerland and says, you know, hey, how would you do this? And so I do a PowerPoint, just exactly how you would do it. <laughs> just a PowerPoint, little Top Gun brief of toggling through the slides. This is what you need. Here's where I'd go. Here's how I'd do it. Here's FAA-related issues. Here's airshow-related issues. Here's pilot-related issues. Here's maintenance-related issues. Here's how you would kind of do it. And at the end of the brief, and 
I love him. He's a great guy. He's like, okay, sounds good. The car picks you up in like uh, an hour for dinner. I'm like, okay. He leaves and all the people and I said, they said, oh, congratulations, you have the jet team. And so I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. This is how I would do it if I were you. No, no, you're doing it. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, you, he wants you to do this. He's in there and laughing like, in the other room, sucker. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know what, wow, this is a big undertaking. And so for the next three years we did, it was fantastic. We brought the, the entire Breitling jet team over to the U.S., because I was working with all Red Boy Race, I had all the connections with the FAAs doing the whole thing. And so Sue Gardner was great and all air races and air shows. So I worked through her and uh, her husband, uh, Jim Gardner, was the head FISDO guy from the whole Chicago area. So they really helped me put together the whole concept and package. They came over and for two years, we didn't do, you know, how the Blues and the Thunderbirds do hub and spoke kind of, you know, they're in Pensacola, they fly to New York and do an air show and then fly back. And For a couple of days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's how you do it if you're the government. <laughs> that's not the, necessarily the most financially feasible way. And so what we would do is we started in Lakeland, Florida, where Sun and Fun is down there in mm-hmm. Lakeland, and Drocken. Remember when Drocken headquarters was, yeah. was there too? That was where our headquarters were. So we brought the, the planes in, did everything there, and then we just went like on a tour. So we'd go, dun, dun, dun. Take a break, dink, 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 take a break, dink, 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 take a break. And so we went around the whole United States and Canada, did, I think, 50 air shows, 120 displays, every iconic, because obviously from a marketing perspective, they wanted every iconic backdrop. Right. So the Grand Canyon, the Statue of Liberty, yeah. the everything. Yeah. Chicago skyline, um, the- um, Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore. Yeah, that was a, those were the most challenging things was, Getting permission to, then flying the photo scenarios, the photo flights, if you will, with these iconic backdrops. Yeah. I mean, because that's in a formation of, you know, seven jets. And we'd swap out. I would usually fly either the videographer or the photographer. And then so we'd make a pass, for example, of, of the Golden Gate Bridge. And the photographer was snapping because it would be a different perspective that you'd try to capture. And then we'd circle back around and come back and do it again, but this time a videographer. And the videographer has a total different perspective. He wants <laughs> to see motion and movement, and you know. but t- timing it was challenging. So between the air shows and doing all the photo shots and photo flights, it was a few years, but they're exactly you and me with French accents <laughs> and a little cologne. <laughs> But they are they're exactly the same as you and I okay. with a with a different accent. And uh it's one of the things that I love with Red Boy Race and with the Brightling Jet team. You and I are fighter pilots. All of a sudden you go to different parts of the world. Even Russia. We raced in uh about five hundred kilometers uh west of uh Moscow a few times. In Asia, in Europe, in South America, we'd say that the air is the same. You know, there's borders, there's religion, there's politics, oh, yeah. but the air is the same. Bernoullis are the same. Pilots are the same. Our love of flight and passion for flight is the same. So it was really cool from a fighter pilot perspective where you're kind of like you're my adversary to a Red Bull Air Race pilot or a Breitling jet team pilot where it's like, no, 
it's kind of like rugby, you know, meeting after the game where it's like, no, our passion is rugby. And it's like, no, our passion is aviation. We don't care about the politics. We don't care about borders, that type of stuff. And so that was really cool yeah. uh, to experience. And when you go to Oshkosh, there's a lot of international people coming. Yeah. You'll experience that as well. I'm glad you said that, Guido, because I actually bring that up on occasion here on the show with my various guests. Is That was a thesis of mine. Is I think we're all pretty much the same. We might look different, talk differently, you know, whatever, but we all have that love for not yep. being feet planted on the earth. We want to get up there and go have some fun. Yeah, so, exactly. Cool. And when you, you talk to a person and he barely speaks English and this or that, and but you can see in his passion yeah. and his smile and his eyes, it's exactly the Everybody same understands as you. this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. I have some listener questions I want to run at you. These are from folks that support the show on Patreon. So I tell them, hey, I'm going to sit down with Guido. By the way, I told him this like five months ago. So okay. they probably Sorry. all forgot. I'm just busting your stones. <laughs> but at any rate, so we'll get through a couple of these. So Jim Gundog says he loved your interview on the Tomcat Tales. I haven't seen that. Sorry to say. Do you know Viz? Viz Carha? I know of him. Okay. Yeah. He'd, he'd be a good guy to. Oh. Yeah. Well, we're always Biz, looking. Biz does, yeah, he's a big Tomcat guy. Yeah, I think he's reached out to the show, actually. I'm probably going to feel bad when he writes me after this. So, what do you, you don't remember? Anyway, Jim wants to know, what was your favorite non-adversary fleet squadron you served in and why? I guess, would that have to be your first one? <laughs> yes. It would be the Tomcat. It would be VF-211 yeah. uh, checkmates. And, again, your first fleet squadron yeah. is just, it's like your first girlfriend. Uh, that's, I think he's. I, I said that in the Tomcat Tales. It's like you, you always have a special place for your first Isn't love. that like some Ernest Hemingway quote or somebody I, talks it, about that? It is. You always have this special place for your first love. And mine was <laughs> the, the Tomcat yeah. and uh, for sure in that squadron and still best friends today from that squadron. As you know, it's oh, just yeah. lifelong friends and definitely uh, BF-211 in the okay. checkmates. Well, I have another F-14 question coming up, but not yet. Here's one from John Clark. Which airplane did, he puts, but maybe I should say do, you wish you had flown and never had the chance to? You've flown a lot. Flown a lot. Mostly Navy modern fighters. I mean, the natural thing to me would be something like the F-35, because I fight the F-35 a lot right now, and they're incredibly capable from a BBBR kind of perspective, and I would like to somehow come to experience some of that mm-hmm. gee whiz technology but i think from a maneuverability perspective because they don't do that that craziest stuff is like some of the things you see at like the su-57 right. or some with the forward canards just the cobra crazy yeah. kind of stuff where engines and everything don't matter you can just do whatever i think i would love to fly that the su-57 or yeah something like that very cool what who what do, what do you want to fly? I always say the F twenty two. Yeah, well, that's kind of. I had a of, chance to fight so, it once, and it, it, I was like rooster in the back seat of what the you know this thing yeah. just it gave me vertigo the maneuvers it was doing it was crazy. Yeah. That kind of weird because you and I have a certain that's track right. crossing mm-hmm. kind of muscle memory, and these things do things that are not that's right. like that. That's right. So. I would love to – F-22 is a, a good one. I was kind of picking a foreign one. I, You know, I flew uh, the demo with the, the helicopter demo. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You with, were for brave Rebel. enough to get in that? Yeah. <laughs> one of my best friends, uh, Blackie uh, Schwartz, is our in is the Red Bull one in, in Austria. And uh, so we were south of Munich, between Su- Munich and Salzburg over the mountains. And, and he'd do, do this whole thing. Someday I'll show you the video. But it was the same. The weird thing was that 
again, your brain is, you associate a certain track crossing angle with certain G-force and right. a certain feeling in your body because it's always felt that way. When your eyes saw it, that's what you felt. Mm-hmm. And so it was strange in a helicopter scenario. You see these crazy maneuvers, but you're at like one G or one and a half G. Wow. And it's, it's like it doesn't make sense. Like you said, almost like not sick, like nauseous, but like confused. it's confused. Yeah. It's like it's not the synapses are not yeah. firing yeah. properly. I think muscle memory is the best way to put it because of all the aircraft we talked about today. Again, right. A4, F5, F14, 16, 18. They all do, like you said, pretty much the same thing. Yeah. And you get used to seeing that. All right. Niels Hansen wants to know, is there anyone in aviation you met that left you starstruck? If so, what was that interaction like? Probably you get that when people meet you. (laughs) (laughs) Very fortunate, again, with Oshkosh, Mm -hmm. with Breitling, with Red Bull. I've been very fortunate to meet lots and lots and lots of very well-known aviation people from the civilian side to the air show side to the air race side, the general aviation no one I, I wouldn't say starstruck. Everybody has their own passion. And sure. that's what I'd say it's more like the similarities. I mean, somebody like a Bob Hoover had tons of stories. Tons yeah. and tons of stories. And I, I was in uh at Sun and Fun and I was fortunate to fly back. A friend Jim Slattery flew him back and it was just Jim Slattery, Bob Hoover and myself. Cool. And for like six hours just flew back and listened to some stories. Or at Oshkosh, he'd be sitting around fire pits drinking whiskey and and telling stories. So those types of things are pretty, what I get out of it is not a starstruck. It's more of like, okay, you have the same passion as I do. Maybe a little different story here or there type of thing. I I would say as far as like the most impressive, this goes back to like emotionally for me, Thomas Hudner, you know, what he did in his real life, you know, not an air show, not to, but really what he did and given everything i don't know if you've seen the the movie and devotion, the, the devotion yep. in the story i've not read the book it, the book is fantastic I need to, and yeah. to meet him and i did a lot of centennial naval aviation events with him and his wife and to see his humility and you know as a medal of honor recipient to you know he he would never brag or boast or anything i mean i've boasted more in the last 30 seconds than he did in his whole life <laughs> And so as far as like starstruck, as far as impressive human being, Mm -hmm. he and really that whole World War II generation of of individuals, I would say, are are the people that kind of impress me the most. Very good. All right. Jevin has a hypothetical situation. I think this is what I was alluding to earlier. You and a previous Rio of your choice find yourself behind enemy lines and have to jump back into an F-14 and escape the country. How likely would you be able to get a Tomcat in the air? He's got a corollary about fighting the SU-57 on your way out. But let's just start <laughs> easy. I thought they did a good job in the movie of flick this, get the air, disconnect. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's funny that uh, I wonder where he got that idea. <laughs> yeah, just, he's very imaginative. Funny story about that specific airplane as well. I'll bring up in a second. But I, I think uh, picking a Rio, just because he's a good buddy of mine, Slapshot, Ted Carter, he and I went to the boat. At the very beginning, when I first started flying F-14s, and you know Slapshot probably. Actually, I don't know that oh, I do. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, um, I'm, I'm trying to think why we're former, talking. Former, he's got the most most traps as a Rio of anybody 2,000-something. Oh, my gosh. Uh, was the 
Naval Academy superintendent, okay. and now he's the president at Nebraska, and just a super good guy and Mr. Tomcat, okay. uh, you know, as far as a backseater. So uh, I think, uh, and a great friend. So I think he would be my Rio, and uh, I think the reason I say that is he probably remembers everything, and being a Rio that had to deal with knucklehead students, he probably could talk me through <laughs> how to start the dang thing back up. But I'd probably be able to start it up, and I think I'd be able to take off. Like we said before, that first jet is the one you oh, yeah. remember. I remember I had a – actually, it was not too long ago. Well, a few years ago. But we got up, did our G-warm back going into the Fallon Ranges, and he turned back, and he was like 90 right, 90 left. And then he went back like this, the flight lead. And so I was I was way sucked. And so I just, just put in the blower to kind of get back into position. So I put in a blower, and then I tried to take it out of blower, and it just stuck, right? Yeah, the throttle's just full blower, you know, and you start pulling back, and I'm like, okay, there's obviously something wrong, and I don't want to break something, right? So yeah. how hard do I pull? And I start doing the negative G and the positive G and, you know, just shaking it all up and, you know, first telling him, and as I'm starting to go by, I'm like, right. hey, Guido, lead right. <laughs> I, got, I, got, I got a problem. And so then I'm trying to pull it back, and I, gosh, darn it. And I couldn't, I couldn't do it, so I'm like, all right, so I'm going to have to shut down this engine before I run out of gas and can't land this way and stuff like that. And so now is funny because I'm like, okay, shutting down. And then I thought, oh, I have to pull. Oh, no, wait, that's the Tomcat shut down. Do I have to put? No, that's the Hornet shut down. Do I have to do? No, that's the <laughs> 16 And it was like the the memory of like which airplane you had the most experience in and how you kind of remembered that. So I think... I'd probably remember how to start it up, and definitely from a takeoff perspective. I think I'd remember to sweep my wings forward to take off. Do you know Coochie yeah. uh, Mingo? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he helped with writing that scene in Sarge Slaughter, both Tomcat buddies, as well in the movie for, uh, right. for that. Very good. And also the, you know, when you bring back one throttle and the split swap throttle ends thing. and yeah. swap throttles. Yeah, that was a, that was a Coochie-ism uh, yeah. I thought that was, and that came up, I think, on the F-14 Tomcast Crunch and Bio. We're talking about that. But I thought that was sort of verboten. It is. Oh, for sure. Okay. And it, with the GE engine, you might do something like okay. that. But the Pratt & Whitney, you would, it, you'd be off to the races. <laughs> hey, it was an you old would, engine. Yeah. They've you would, better. Uh, you would, uh, they're much better now. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, yeah, you would, you'd probably stall. Okay. Harrison Wells wants to know, what is your quintessential Navy memory? And this is an interesting question because it's up to you to decide what quintessential means. Wow. So, you know, there's tons of uh, airborne kind of related stuff, but the, a lot of it kind of comes together. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe an emergency here or there or a crazy issue that happened at the boat or with an emergency or something like that. But those aren't – I'd say – to me, quintessential, a couple things. Being in command is a very rewarding role to get. And I remember vividly some command experiences, the not aviation, not flying kind of stuff as much sure. as just like leading somebody and, and a, a young petty officer coming in and introducing me to her mom and dad. You know, like the emotion and the pride that the parents had on their face when I was like, 
thank you for being good parents because yeah. she's a rock star and she's helping this squadron and she's helping America and she's helping. Mm-hmm. And I'd say those things and, you know, the mom starts to cry, <laughs> you know, the kid starts to cry yeah, and the petty officer does. And, and then the dad's beaming in pride. Yeah. And, you know, to me, that actually kind of, that was the human element. And so I would say between something like that and then we've kind of talked about my family, my my wife, my kids, my dad and mom, you know, their involvement and especially with my dad, that this thing mm-hmm. and, and that pride and the bond, I think, are the, the quintessential emotional yeah. things more than I got a thousand like you do a thousand airborne right. stories. For but sure. Sunsets, the, the nobody else sees. And yeah, everything. Yeah. yeah. Sunsets, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. But uh, emotionally, probably my, you know, my family. Yeah, there's so many of those. You know what jumped into my mind when I was listening to you thinking about Harrison's question, which is an interesting one, is the time when we went by the USS Arizona and we were mm-hmm. manning the rails and I happened to go up just because I wanted to partake in that and they had everybody render honors. And yeah. it was like, it's kind of cool. You know? Yeah, that's so, like that same yeah. thing that, Hey, this is we're a small piece of a pretty yeah. enormous thing. And yeah. so when you you get that magnitude, it's pretty cool. Yeah. All right, here's the question about rugby I promised you. It's by uh, Ben Todd, who started off as a supporter of the show, and I recruited him into helping. So he's my right-hand guy with all this stuff. You played and coached rugby. What similarities do you find between a rugby team and a fighter squadron? Ah, that's a good question. <laughs> There's a lot of synergy and similarities there. Yeah. yeah. A rugby team in a locker room is much like a fighter squadron in a ready room. There's that, uh, like I said before, I learned more on a rugby pitch, which is the rugby field, right. than I did in a classroom about life. And the bond, I think it's like when you go to – somebody else famous says this. When you go into battle with your peers – the bond that you form with your peers is like no other bond mm-hmm. that you can form. No other co-worker. I shouldn't say no other. It's very odd that right. a regular job and co-workers have the type of bond that you form with somebody that you go into battle with. And so going into battle on a rugby pitch is the same. I mean, maybe it's not life-threatening, but at the highest levels – from national championships to playing the U.S. national teams, I couldn't have tried harder. I, I was at 100.0%, and so was everybody else on my team. And the bond and coming together, we it's not a net zero-sum game where you one plus one plus one is not three. It's one plus one plus one can be 20 because of you coming together and, and doing that. That's the exact same as in a fighter squadron, right? You can be more together well you know section integrity division integrity about you know one plus one is worth three or four sure. type people and so i think there's that bond of like you know my best friends are still i have a on my cell phone it says uh 85 national champs and there's 19 guys still to this day that was 35 years ago <laughs> we text each other all the time knuckleheads they're just absolute knuckleheads and the same knuckleheads are in fighter squadrons. Yeah. And we text each other all the time. And so that work hard, play hard, fly hard, play hard mentality and that 
we're going to go into battle, but then we're going to go into the bar and we're going to have fun and we're going to have like just enjoy life because now we know how special life is. Okay. Those are some similarities and bonds that uh, a fighter squadron, if he's a rugby player, it, a fighter squadron is exactly like a rugby team. <laughs> Very good. Drinking games, call signs, all the all the same <laughs> stuff. All right. The last question is from Michael. Of all the aircraft you have flown, which is your favorite? I think we answered this. Maybe I don't know. At least you have a deep love for the F-14. Is it your favorite? If they're all out there on the flight line and you could be magically current right now, we're going to walk out of the hangar and go jump in one. Which is your quote unquote favorite? Again, that's kind of like what does favorite mean? I I, I think if if I could resurrect my skill set. Mm-hmm. Like I had the ability to be as proficient as I once was, mm-hmm. as I once thought I was, maybe, <laughs> whatever that country western song is. Yeah, yeah. I think it'd be the A4 Super Fox. Really? Just because when you really got good at it, it was like playing a an instrument mm-hmm. that there was no computer. It was you. It was all your right. feet, your hand, your brain, your fingers, your your. it was all your movements. And boy, but if you really got good at it, it was like putting on a glove. It was so tight. I mean, I'm not a big guy, and I had to switch. I had to move my shoulders to lower the canopy. You know, so you touched here, and it was just this incredibly maneuverable aircraft. Uh, any one of them would be great. I could talk about any one. It's like your favorite car, though. But yeah. <laughs> Depends what you're doing. If you're going to Costco, you might take one car. But if you're going for <laughs> a exactly Sunday right. afternoon drive, maybe a different one. Well, you're not done. I mean, today you're still flying fighters, for heaven's sakes, right? Very fortunate. Uh, Tactical Air Support, one of the couple companies out there in the U.S. right now or in the world. friend of yours and mine, uh, R.C. Thompson, Dog Thompson, uh, built this company. And it's basically a, a Red Air Top Gun adversary type model. We fly the F-5 still, but it's what we call the Advanced Tiger pretty vastly the airframe is the same the wings the engines Mm -hmm. you know hydraulics those are all the same but all the inside all the avionics completely different we have a garmin 3000 screen we got other touchscreen radios have aim nine helm mounted queuing system radar specific built raw specific and now we have a a couple new things uh durfum jamming and tack erst the IRST that uh, we just put on our nose that we're just developing now. Yeah. So looks the same as the uh, older F5, but it has vastly different capabilities. Turn rate, turn radius, BFM stuff, same, but the BBR stuff, significantly different. And so, and that's really where our, our role is right now, as you know, is against the F35 and the Hornets. And even we fight with the, uh, the Air Force a lot as well. It's about this game more than this game. Mm-hmm. So having the ability to really simulate, emulate, replicate the highest level adversaries, which give the blue fighters the best training, right. is very rewarding. So it's fun. I'm old, for sure. So <laughs> I don't pull as many Gs, so it's kind of nice that yeah. uh, in the break is probably the highest Gs that uh, in today's world. Most of it's BBR stuff. But no, lots of fun and still lucky and <laughs> yeah. I, to be quite honest it's to me the the reason why i still do it is probably why you're doing this right now as well as i love naval aviation all aspects of it so much and the patriotism and the camaraderie and the 
in everything that is made up in the concept of fighter pilots in this relationship that we have. And to be able to still kind of be in that and feel like I'm contributing just a little tiny bit to something is incredibly rewarding. And so that's why I do it. At some point, dog's going to say, hey, old, old, old man, you know, get out. Uh, but right now, I you know it's I'm I'm proud to be part of it. Tech Air is a Tech Air Support is a is a great company to be work with and is a lot of fun uh, to fly. And I think we're doing a really good job. So we have the contract. A couple things we have just resigned a, with Top Gun with Nautic with the uh, the Nautic recompete. So we have five years next an additional five years to be the Red Air provider. And we're kind of at the disposal of Nautics. They might say, go help that RAG, go help that SFARP, go help that Air Wing, that Havoc, go help whoever we need to be adversaries for, wherever we need to go. So we help East Coast, West Coast. We go to Key West. We were just there a month ago. I was in Moffett Field yesterday. Uh, so we'll go wherever we are. In addition, what this company does is uh, we're modifying. I talked about the Advanced Tiger. The Navy and the Marine Corps have decided to upgrade their F-5s to be similar to our ATs. And so they kind of went through like a menu and said, we want that, 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 and that. Mm -hmm. And so our company now is taking Navy and Marine Corps jets and remodifying them into these advanced uh, capabilities. Very cool. So, so yeah. it's fun. It's fun. Game. Yeah, sounds like it. There's one system you didn't mention that I bet you wish you had on the old F5. Any of these would be great, but also the ability to come back and look at your tapes, right? So the recording system. Yeah. The, the recording system is important, obviously, yeah. from a debrief yeah, perspective. Yeah. It's pretty interesting now. In today's, we've gone a little bit, like the validating shots is still there. And from the F35, F18 perspective, it's still there. From the adversary perspective, where we're kind of doing more of now is from a red net perspective is a lot of stuff back in the building in the tax range. So yeah. a lot of the stuff we do, it's more, it's not validating our shot necessarily, you know, valid shot at trigger, squeeze, kind of, kind of the old school mm -hmm. stuff. It's more like, okay, let's go back. Let's see where, where the fighters did well, where they are maybe a little bit vulnerable to pull out the lessons learned to make them better fighter pilots tomorrow. So the tax ranges are so incredible now that, uh, as you probably have talked in other episodes with like LVC and mm -hmm. inject to live and stuff like that, it's really, it's getting a little bit less about what happened inside of my cockpit and more about the, the big picture, what's happening and what those fighters are uh, seeing and how they're addressing it. Yeah. I took a couple of years off of flying uh, for other reasons, but when I got back in 2013, the red air had totally changed because when we used to do it in yep. Fallon before that, you'd show up, get the card, yep, standard, go out, rage around, have a good time, come back, give the whoever was going to go to the debrief a few notes, and you were done. But <laughs> by then, they wanted, you know, what were you doing specifically? What time? What did you see? What did you feel here? And et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, yeah it took some of the pure joy out of it, I uh, found, but it yeah. definitely makes the blue guys better. It does. So. And, uh, and it's more about that big picture engagement. And yeah. so you really glean the most out of seeing the tax range and seeing how yeah. the geometry works. And the F-35 is so fantastic. Well, the Super Hornet is too. But F-35, their SA 
their situational awareness on what's happening and is is just phenomenal. Yeah, it's just incredible. All right, so you're still flying, and uh, I'm guessing maybe what you have, might have a week off, but then when you're flying, you probably fly every day, kind of thing. Yeah, we fly. Well, so I'll fly. So I still live Coronado with you, yeah. um, and so since we detached, so I'll probably spend half my time, maybe two weeks out of the month, two and a half, three weeks out of the month flying. Half the time is probably in Fallon, and the other half is we do a lot of stuff like off the coast now oh. uh, because the ranges are really big, and mm-hmm. that's good. So we'll detach out of Moffitt and Santa Maria a lot. So I'll go straight – like this last week, I was just right at Moffitt. So I just flew up to San Jose. They brought my flight gear down, flew all week in San Jose out of Moffitt, <laughs> and then flew straight down here. So I didn't even go to Fallon this last week. And then a month ago, we were down in Key West. We tend to do West Coast just – for administrative, you know, flying the jets around is easier. But, uh, yeah, so about half the month I'll yeah. be flying. Well, and you said earlier you used to keep your aircraft here before Bones bought this FBO, turned it into the Circle Air Group, which is kind enough to uh, let us use and make it into a studio. He's got a bunch of F5s, as we've talked about before on the show. Are you involved with him at all? Or are you guys? Uh... Fantastic <laughs> uh, guy, Deconger, and what he's done here is just unbelievably impressive. Yeah. I mean, he's not this giant. Well, he's got the giant company and stuff, but he, as an individual, has mm-hmm. really put together this whole capability. One of the unique things that he's brought from a business perspective, we tend to, we being Techler Support in the typical fighter pilot world, our muscle memory is the military and naval and Air Force aviation, et cetera. And so our squadron is very much like if you came and flew with us tomorrow, you'd be like, yep, this is just VF XYZ. Mm-hmm or VFA XYZ. And what D brought in is because of his corporate business experience is really like thinking outside the box of everything, of like design, about manufacturing, about maintenance. And and so it's interesting what he's done and how he's done different, like, okay, there's an issue. We're going to solve this issue, but it's he's solving it different than how you might think a typical fighter pilot would solve it. So he's really introduced a lot of cool policies, procedures, techniques, you know, whatever you want to call it, of how to do that. And so we utilize him. Tactical Air Support utilizes him not only from a maintenance perspective, but he also lets us borrow or we rent. Right. <laughs> he doesn't let us borrow. It's not like borrowing your <laughs> your tables your or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, We lease jets from him when we have to surge different aspects of certain things and so no he's fantastic yeah i mean you can great guy great pilot great fantastic businessman so he's that was his thing was building this business here at the fbo like a squadron so people take care of each other and look out for each other and have a vested interest in it so that's great so you're you're still flying are you still doing restaurant stuff not doing restaurant per se. So I sold all the restaurants and bars and clubs, which was kind of fortuitous given the fact that uh, COVID and you yeah. know all that kind of hit. Lots and lots of friends still in the restaurant bar uh, industry, and they had some challenges. That, that Some guys didn't make it through. There was a tough – for the hospitality world, that was a tough run for those guys. So I do have kind of dovetailed still – business in the sense of it's it's combining my passions of fighter pilot aviation and aviation in general with hospitality and fun and enjoying life 
But since you mentioned it, there's a nice little segue here. <laughs> so I'm starting a, uh, a vodka line. Okay. And it's uh, interesting that I, I named it Fighter Pilot Distillery is our distillery. And uh, this line is starting with vodka, but it'll do whiskey and tequila and gin and rum, etc. But it's aviation-related vodka, and uh, it's called Check Six Vodka. Reason I started with vodka, vodka, if you know from a distilling perspective, is pretty straightforward in the sense of you don't have to age it. It's not like a whiskey or a tequila or something like that that would take years to do. Mm-hmm. You can do this quickly. That being said, I'm very, very much of a nitpicky on making sure the product is top gun quality, right. if you will. Uh, best of the best. And so found a wonderful distillery here in San Diego, created a great recipe. We actually distill from pure cane. So sugar cane, which is a little bit more expensive, but it makes it much smoother. Distill it up to like 195 proof. And then the dilution, we're using reverse osmosis to bring it back down to 80 proof, which is the required strength, if you will, proof of, uh, of the alcohol. So it's super, super smooth. From a marketing perspective, the concept is, you know, check six. You and I know this airborne all the time. Check in six. <laughs> We say it as a wingman in a real scenario, like check six, like there's somebody behind you, check six. If you and I are doing a 1v1, it's kind of more fun. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm beating you. I'm gunning you. Look behind you. And then that translates down into the bars and the restaurants and our social life. Check six. I'm behind you in the bar. Or look at that cute girl behind you or et cetera. So <laughs> it kind of – that's why I picked check six. And then what I did – I thought a good fun side of this is because it will be like private label and specific to different scenarios. And so I'm, I have different brand ambassadors from, say, Top Gun, the Blue Angels, NASA, the Thunderbirds, Vintage, et, et cetera. And then when you check six, if you check six of the bottle, then you'll see this special collection. And wow. this one. Look at that. Can they see that? Yeah. <laughs> this is the... Fighter Pilot Podcast Special Collection with uh, some photo that you might recognize. I do indeed. But you can you can try it. Let me see. Uh, you say it's good, huh? <laughs> Dude, how did you check that like that? It's smooth. Well, oh, that's really, really good. It is. Yes. Well, thank you. So I'm uh, proud to uh, – and then part of it is a philanthropic kind of uh, capability too is – so, for example, if we'll do a, uh, a fighter pilot podcast, a special collection, then you designate as the guru where proceeds from yeah. this bottle will go. Through. So Fantastic. a charity of your choice, et cetera. So it will be fun. It's a great like you in this whole environment. It's a great way, fun way to stay connected. And yeah. uh, we'll have some fun with it. Fantastic. Well, let me know when you're ready. I imagine there's some red tape to get through with that to make sure you're ready. The government is pretty particular about people <laughs> producing alcohol. So yeah, we're doing it the right way though. I hope you're not printing guns in your house too, because you uh, might as well just do everything. <laughs> no, we haven't. No, yeah, okay. we haven't done that part. <laughs> All right. Should we tell people it's just full of water or not? It's up to you. <laughs> you can, did it taste like water? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Drink responsibly. Yeah. We'll tell people. So, so yeah. my drink responsibly, my daughter says, don't drink in dogfight. Mm. You know, so True. that will be a little catchphrase for, oh, yeah. uh, 
That could help so. with your legal side of things as well. So yeah, good. exactly. All right. Well, so all these things though that we've talked about today, Guido, you've been a good sport. Thank you. A lot of this is I don't want to say fallen in your lap, but you've built a network and and people know you and you've achieved various cool things. If you had to predict, I mean, is your phone going to ring again? And you know, if we met two years from now to talk about, oh yeah, first it was Oshkosh, then it was the Jet, the Breitling guys, then you know, not in this order, obviously, but like, who's going to call you next? Yeah, there are there are a couple things. So this is one thing. Yeah. The Check Six Vodka was one, again, from an entrepreneurial spirit. You have it. It's that bug, and it's palpable. It's it's there, and you want to do it. And I did that with the restaurants and bars, and now with this. That being said, there is uh, two other things that I'm, I'm looking at. And one, I'll tease it because I think okay. uh, it would be something nobody's done it, and it's, I think, really, really, really cool. And I'm about two-thirds of the way through most of it and so maybe on a future podcast okay. i could come back and uh i think you would really like it okay well but i, I don't want to no, divulge anything absolutely yet. but clearly it's not a book because people have done that so when's your book coming out i don't know if i can <laughs> that, that takes a lot just get isn't this doesn't this kind of well sure, suffices we can do the book the transcript but no people i mean you have amazing stories so you got here's what you do i'm told talk to someone who ghostwrites for like three or four hours on the phone, they send you a book by Jim yeah. DiMatteo. <laughs> I'm not doing that, by the way. I'm painstakingly writing my memoirs. And it's I do you know painful. Nasty Manazer? Huh? Yeah, so Nasty did that, and he told me that. That's exactly how he did it. And oh, I really? was like, yeah, like he talked to somebody for a while, and then they wrote this thing, <laughs> and now he's on yeah. his book tour. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm – uh, you know how the, the book, there's so many things when you start talking like this, the stories are great. So yeah. I love the fact that podcasts have gone not only from audio, but now visual as well, because right. that really kind of brings it to the next level. I, I will, th there is something, and I mentioned it earlier, and I'd say this is like really super important to me, is my dad's, like his diary. My sister found this diary, and it literally goes through every day from 1940 to 1950 wow. as a as a young kid in the navy and every night before he put his head on his pillow back then culturally people wrote a lot wrote a lot of letters and stuff and so he kept a diary and we found this diary just a few years ago just by happenstance and it's unbelievable because there are certain things that you will look at and go oh my god that's exactly the same today Exactly. Same words, same everything. Hmm. And then there's other things that are just awe-inspiring in the sense of like what not just my dad, what all of our parents did in that generation to give us the freedoms that we have. I mean, there are things like it was classic. He'd say, got up, went to church, went to church a lot. Nice Italian boy. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. a nice Italian boy. Had three hops today. Gun hop, rocket hop, bombing hop, played some football. They watched the movie every night, roll them, right? Saw It's a Wonderful Life, you know, with Jimmy Stewart. Um, good movie, lost five planes, an SB2C, a TBM, a Hellcat, and a Bearcat. I'm like, if we lost five planes like that, <laughs> we would stop, right? <laughs> we would, if we lost five planes in a, a year, yeah. we would have a safety stand down. Yeah. And so it was page after page after page of just his roommate, his wingman, his CO, his XO, his DCAG wow. perishing. And to feel like they have to get up the next day 
Because if you ask my, if you ask you or me, hey, who's the best fighter pilot? We always have the, eh, you're looking at him, right? That kind of stuff. I never did say that, by the way. I never yeah. did either, right? But, you know, they have that, we have more bravado. Sure. And if you ask my dad, you know, he, like Thomas Hudner, when I mentioned before, their humility is just, you know, incredible. And I was very, very fortunate with this award, this aviation Hall of Fame thing. And yeah. a bunch of years later, I get called by this committee that was, you know, doing it and said, hey, we're going to, we decided to elect your father to be in uh, part of the Aviation Hall of Fame as well. And you're the only son and father combo. And do you want to tell him or do you want us to tell him? And I was like, okay, I'd love to tell him. So I called my dad and I said, hey, I've got this, you know, really cool news. You know, you're going to get this award, this Aviation Hall of Fame. It's it's super prestigious. It's very cool. It's it's so deserving. And he said, why? And I said, oh, what do you mean, why, Dad? Come on, Pops. And he goes, no, why? Why me? And I said, why you? You've got multiple DFCs, Distinguished Flying Crosses. You've got sure. a ton of air medals. You've fought in three wars. You've What do you mean, why you? Come on, Pops. Because he used to always say that, and well, he said that to me then, and then he goes, "I was the lucky one. I came home. Mm. I had a wonderful wife, my mom. I have all of you wonderful kids and grandkids. I got my reward. I got the best reward in the world. Don't you think you should give this award to one of my wingmen that didn't make it home?" I'm like, <laughs> you know, like a gut punch of yeah. like, wow. you, you know. Holy cow. Well, dad, you're here. They're not. And this is great because you can tell these stories. But I think it's like a uh, almost like survivor's guilt. So many people perished that the people who made it home, he doesn't want to get an award for being lucky. Right. You know, and I'm like. You know, when I got it, I wanted to pull a billboard up there. Did you see it? It was on Highway 5. (laughs) So that kind of stuff, it comes through in this diary, and he didn't write it for anybody ever to see it. It was just his thoughts as a young 20-year-old kid and in a war. But you would love it. Actually, Top Gun Nautic asked me, Sonic asked me to – because I have pictures of every I took pictures of every page just so we didn't I have the book but it, really the pictures of every page just mm-hmm. to capture it and forever and he's like hey could you post some of those because literally it's like the Japanese attacked our westernmost possession today westernmost possession yeah Hawaii wasn't a state it was a western possession at the time so you know or he'd say something funny like because they were in Kahului he'd say I flew over to Fort Island and uh we got uh, in the TBM, and I filled it all full of beers and booze for our beach party. <laughs> Mike, okay, that shows you that naval aircraft can be used to transport alcohol. Or he'd come over and he'd say, "Hey, I got my first haircut from a woman today." You know, so it's just to hear that, or even like he's like, "Hey, Bukri and I is one of his wingmen. Bukri and I um, went out into town and we met two swell gals, Gloria and Susie." Well, Gloria is Mrs. Bukri. I've known her for my whole life, but this was like 1945 when they met, you know, these swell gals. So if I did some kind of book, I would hope to maybe do something that could tie 
that kind of stuff in because it's not about me. It's about your dad and my dad, your listeners' dads. It's about their families, all the things they did. And this is like a – and to think it would have been thrown out like – my sister just happened to – she mailed it to me in the mail, like a manila envelope. I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) But she didn't know what it was, and so it almost got thrown out. So anyways, sorry for the long story. No, no, that's good. And that's part of what we're trying to preserve on this show and others that do is this generation that's unfortunately – although yours is almost 102. That's impressive. So, But a lot of them – my dad's gone. He he passed at 93. All right, so let me ask you this then. You – he spent, didn't drink as much vodka as, as well, you and I should, are going to do. We should do it again. <laughs> um, you speak very reverently of, of him and his generation, and I appreciate that. Suppose maybe my kid has your kid on the show in 30 years, and we're talking about you. What do you want your legacy to be? Because, oh, by the way, a moment ago, while you were thinking about that, you dropped this, uh, oh, yeah, Aviation Hall of Fame thing, which I had on my notes and forgot to ask you about. <laughs> but you've seen a lot. You've made a big difference as well. So what do you think when you, when you hear the word legacy? Well, I don't think I'm in that category because I hold my dad pretty high. Clearly. So I don't want to assume that I'm like that. So I think I've been extremely fortunate. I worked hard like you have worked hard. Some things fell on both of our, you know, laps in in, in the sense of like in, in a good way. Not saying that we didn't deserve it, but it's like crashes. It's like, you know, I know people that geez, he was a great pilot. I don't know. Maybe if that happened to me at that same time, the same thing would have happened to me. So I think I feel more about being honored to be part of this team than be singled out as an individual achiever of the team. It's probably how you feel too. It's like, I feel so dang proud to just be a naval aviator, not necessarily because of what I've done, but because of what everybody's done. And I'm just, I'm on this Super Bowl championship team. I get a ring that, uh, you know, they're coming gold wings, but mm-hmm. that's what I'm I'm mostly proud of. So if it's far as a, a legacy, I, I hope if my son and your son are here 30 years from now saying this, that uh, he's first going to go, yeah, my dad's 112. <laughs> <laughs> Still drinking vodka and his tequila, but he really had Tried to no knock idea. him off. He's super resilient. <laughs> Those Italian genes. That's right. No, I hope that he would say he's a you know good human being, good dad, good mentor, and you know had a positive impact a on people. Yeah. I, naval I, aviation, outside naval aviation, whatever, yeah. just had a positive impact on life. Yeah, that's what I hope my good. legacy good. would be. Do uh, people who maybe want to follow you? Do you have a persona somewhere on social media or online anywhere? Or, uh, so with Red Bull, now that was a big thing, right? So Red Bull, we do the, the smoke on. So I'd call smoke on. You're clearing the track, smoke on. That was our catchphrase. And so for each racer, for each racer, yeah. and we'd say it in different languages, mm. and it was fun. Like um, the Czech guy, Martin Shanka, they'd do. It's a Diki Kamo, which means like thanks, dude, in Czech. And it was like hashtag Diki Kamo, a humongous <laughs> thing all around the world. It was, was a Czech thing. So I kind of pulled back from that just from, uh, you know, I do the Facebook type of stuff. And for the last five years, I've been holding off just because I, from a social media side, it, I kind of wanted more, you know, Instagram and that kind of stuff going down this path. So, 
I will, from a social media perspective, yeah, I'll have to tell you what the what I don't know what my handle is. I think it's like it's, it's <laughs> well, you're like, on LinkedIn. The, yeah, LinkedIn, right? you're LinkedIn, on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I'm trying to think. Isn't it? Uh, it's like Bogey Pilot or or something uh, like people that. People have to do their it's own it, sleuthing. To I'll, find I'll, you. By the time this airs, okay. you'll put a little tag. What Guido meant to say Nobody was... Nobody ever reads the descriptions <laughs> on these. I can say you're getting... Well, I won't go down okay. that path. But anyway. <laughs> well, we're almost done here, but wait, hold on. One more thing. Uh, when I was researching, I mean, I feel like I know you pretty well, but I like to do a little research as well. I see that people can book you as a keynote speaker. Is that still something you do? Actually, I've done quite a bit of that. Yeah. That's probably done 50 different really? events. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, I actually enjoy that a lot. I mean, it's kind of like this and they can I, I do probably one a month what? yes ish okay from big large things to multiple thousands of people to uh smaller uh coronado rotary like what you did the other been a couple uh, of years a couple of years yeah. yeah i just did it just a couple of days i'll tell you i mean this is i have a really good presentation that dovetails my dad's Oh, cool. story mm-hmm. in that book and that's like a home run because it ties in some leadership well I do leadership stuff and I tie sure. in the rugby and the Navy aviation and the difference is I've got a unique approach that from a business perspective because it's not just Joe Blow fighter pilot saying this is how you have to implement these right. leadership rules in because your civilian company yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's more like holy cow in the Top Gun debrief scenario culture you try to run a restaurant and have a debrief culture and tell that hostess that, you know, she really needed to seat the people this way, not that way. And then she starts to cry. And, you know, people in general, it's from a civilian perspective, you have to be careful about constructive criticism. There's a way to do that and how to do that. So it's a unique situation and it's a lot of fun. I typically do a lot of it. I'll bring my wife as you know, wives have a they're an integral part of this. Oh, yeah. And although a lot of guys a lot of people like to hear the Top Gun Maverick world of how did you get where you are and what did you, did you learn? A lot of people like to go, Okay, Mrs. Guido, Mrs. Di Matteo, <laughs> how do you deal with this dude? How did you deal with him being gone for so long? And you raising your kids with no husband and cutting the lawn and doing the insurance and fixing the car and, you know, shopping. And so we do we've done quite a bit where where I'd go and I'd talk and then she would be on a panel or something like that and answer some questions, too. And it's more fun to do that that way as well. So I do it for more entertainment than business. Good. Well, I'm sure you get as much as you give because you can learn from the people you're interacting with. So, a hundred percent. Yeah, I love the big companies, corporations like yeah. that. I, I just did one. Um, you might know. So Tony Larusa, he has ARF Animal Rescue Foundation. Hmm. Uh, Tony Larusa was Hall of Fame manager, baseball player, and then manager oh. Oakland A's, and then St. Louis Cardinals World Series. You okay. know, great, great, great guy. But he had a cat run on the field one time when he was a manager of at Oakland and and they did this story and then he kept the cat and it turned into a huge animal rescue foundation uh-huh. and I just did a presentation and incredibly they have this thing called uh, pets and vets they call it helping both ends of the leash mm-hmm. and they take veterans with like PTSD mm-hmm. and they take animals that are going to be euthanized 
and then they put them together and trained them both, the animal and the owner. And it was spectacular. I just did this dinner. It was in Vegas. And this guy was, you know, contemplating taking his life. This guy was contemplating taking his life. That dog and that dog were both going to be euthanized. And now here's these two wonderful families. It was just, it was really cool. So anyways, yeah, I get as much out of (laughs) them. They probably a lot more than they get out of me. Well, and back to then the beginning of why I was somewhat cussing you out was you keep pretty busy. So uh, you're always running around. Hard to get you to sit down, but I'm so glad you did because I really enjoyed our, I don't know how long we've been talking, but time flies when I sit down with great guests like you. So thanks. Last question, Jim DiMatteo. You've talked about your Italian roots. Guido, probably I can figure that one out, but any good story when it was bestowed on you maybe? The call sign Guido, well, I had a a flight instructor that was from New York. And he, so Guido, I thought Guido was actually a complimentary term. <laughs> I didn't realize that he was doing it as like a derogatory demeaning. term. Demeaning. Yeah, like a demeaning, like you're just you a Guido. You must have been new to fighter aviation at that point, because come on, who would well, give you a complimentary Well, that's calls? what I thought. I was like, <laughs> hey, this is pretty cool. You're like butthead. You're like, you know, bozo. And yeah. I get Guido. That's cool. And he's and then the other guys from New York are like, no, no, no. A Guido is like a derogatory term for them. And I'm like, not for me. I'm like totally <laughs> proud of my Italian heritage. <laughs> this is great. I'd love it. Uh, so yeah, that's. that's I'm surprised it's stuck. If you liked it. Well, that's what somebody actually told me. Yeah, yeah. They said, don't. Don't, 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 don't look pretend. too excited yeah. with it because they'll pull that thing yeah, from you. That's right. We're going to name you assassin. Oh, darn it. I did have the, I did have the, I had like the St. Christopher and the Italian horn, you know, because my mom and dad had given it to me and they're like, you wear this when you fly because this will keep you safe. Yeah. And it was actually a medal that my dad wore for oh, his cool. whole career. Yeah. So I was like, absolutely, I'll wear that. And so I did have the, you know, a little bit of a Guido thing going on, but I think that's, <laughs> I didn't realize it was bad. <laughs> All right, Guido, you've been a good sport and uh, let's uh, open up some more vodka, but then I got to drive you home. So uh, okay. I guess we better be careful. But anyway, thanks for coming on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Thank you. And thank you for what you do for uh, all this. This is spectacular. Obviously, you're taking your skill level as a Top Gun fighter pilot and applying it to this world of uh, podcast. And thank you for continuing to keep the uh, naval aviation and aviation and fighter pilot world alive. This is spectacular. So congrats. This episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast is adapted from a studio interview conducted at the Circle Air Group FBO on Gillespie Field in El Cajon, California. Visit the Fighter Pilot Podcast YouTube channel to watch this episode and hundreds of other military aviation-themed videos. To learn more about the show, visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. And for exclusive content, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.